Muggers tend to get very depressed when you hum all the while they're beating you up. I don't want to hurt you. I want to change you. Of the 200 marriages that I have performed, all but seven have failed. We it's don't dangerous like to, to challenge a system unless you're completely at peace with the thought that you're not going to miss it when it collapses. Oh, kissing you is like kissing white bread. Okay. I made it to the hall. See if I can walk in and not find burglars in the hallway. I want to be married to a big, strong, vital, virile, self-assured man that I can protect and take care of. Elliot Gould, Donald Sutherland, Lou Jacoby, Alan Arkin, Marsha Rod, in Jules Pfeiffer's Little Murders, a film you don't see, you witness. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. Joseph E. Levine presents a new film produced and directed by Mike Nichols. Carnal Knowledge, starring Jack Nicholson, Candace Bergen, Arthur Garfunkel, and Margaret. Written by Jules Pfeiffer. Carnal Knowledge is Mike Nichols' best, says Hollis Albert of the Saturday Review. Judith Christ of New York Magazine says Carnal Knowledge is brilliant, a feast of a film. Rex Reed calls it a towering achievement, a shattering experience for everyone. Carnal Knowledge. I was sorry to see it end, says Vincent Canby of the New York Times. And Liz Smith of Cosmopolitan says, Carnal Knowledge is one of the best movies ever. Carnal Knowledge, an AFCO embassy release. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. to you live from the, well, not live, (laughs) coming to you from the podcast suite at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, IMC, what is that, Instructional? Instructional Media Center, the The podcast suite. The Instructional Media Center, the podcast suite. This, I realize this is the very first time that uh, we are recording an episode of 70 movies we saw in the 70s uh, in the same room. Yes, you, not... Me not, and anybody else. It's not live, but we are virtually... Uh, we are not virtual. We are not virtually together. We are alive, sitting in the same room together. Yes. My name is Ben Reiser. Across from me is Jim Healy. Hi, Jim. Hello, Ben. Uh So, yeah. So, I, I, maybe this is officially... This is the official post-pandemic... Uh, Started the post-pandemic. Yeah, that's nice. It's nice to be in the same room together. Maybe we can do it more often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do this other podcast with people who don't live in Madison. And so as far as I... And I've actually done some live uh, in the same room uh, recordings with them, but... uh, You were together with Scott? Yeah, we did some... Uh, recordings when uh, they were on tour, his band, Local H. I went to see a couple of shows and did some backstage stuff with them. Oh, nice. Um, But, uh, yeah, I was never in the same room with uh, Mike McPadden uh, while recording uh, and haven't been with you. You and I, boy, this is all going to get cut. (laughs) You and I, uh, back in the day, pre-pandemic, we did a few... um, 
episodes of Cinema Talk. Yes. Which this episode is probably going to be a crossover into the Cinema Talk brand as well um, here in this room. But we haven't been here in a long time. Some of the equipment is new. I don't know exactly how to work it, but it looks like things are working. So uh, hopefully we are good to go. Anyway, uh, thanks for joining us. This is... Um, an episode about two films, uh, and uh, I was going to say there's there, what ties them together uh, is Jules Pfeiffer, but it's more than that. I mean, yes, that's that's what ties these two films together. They were also, they also were both released in 1971, about six months apart from Not each quite. Other. I think like February and June. So like if you were, yeah, almost six months. You're right. But if you were, if you were, you know, in the same. City, like when Carnal Knowledge was released, you could probably find another screen showing Little Murders at the same time. Yeah, I didn't do this research, but I'm wondering. It seems seems like seems like it would be an obvious double bill back in the '70s when they were pairing films all the yeah. time. But these were yeah. not the same studios, right? No, and I'm sure, like, but I'm sure repertory houses sure. picked up on it well into the even the '80s. I'm sure. Sure, sure. In fact, I think I think I even remember like looking at like the Varsity. Calendar in Evanston, Illinois, and mm. um, maybe even like in New York and in in New Jersey in the early '80s, seeing this as a double feature. I'm almost positive that they played together. I'm, I'm sure you know somebody putting together Jules Pfeiffer. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's an obvious double bill. Um, so much so that we're doing it in our own way here at Cinematech this semester. Uh, we have one program, which was two Francis Ford Coppola films that I insisted that we call a couple of Coppolas. This could have been uh, a few Pfeiffers. Fistful of Pfeiffers? Fistful of Pfeiffers. Maybe, it, maybe, it's, maybe two movies isn't quite a fistful. Maybe if we showed Popeye, we'd, we'd, have, we'd have all of his uh, screenplays up. I do like Fistful of Pfeiffers. Now, didn't he also... Well, he did The Point... Right or the point or Phantom Tollbooth something I thought no. he oh there's an animated short he didn't do Phantom Tollbooth and he he didn't have anything to do with the point I don't think but there's an animated short from the early '60s called Monroe which won the Oscar which he wrote and I don't know if that was based on one of his comic strips or something but but I don't I don't know that much about Jules Pfeiffer do you what what have you found in your research I know he's still around he is still around I've I I'll tell you my I knew. I knew Jules Pfeiffer as a kid growing up in New York City. Uh, he had a a regular cartoon uh, series, a comic strip, um, in the Village Voice, uh, which I was a dedicated reader to. Was uh, it always of. Uh, multiple panels, or was it just like a, one panel, like a like a New Yorker style? Uh, my memory of it is that it was multiple panels. It was usually. Uh, a conversation they, they almost felt like overheard conversations in New York which was another hmm. um feature either in the New Yorker or the Village Voice I can't remember which one it was uh uh somebody would somebody would just write down overheard you know right. overheard and you'd hear like you know you'd read um but Jules Pfeiffer's cartoon strips or comic strips always seemed to have that feel to them like he had witnessed these two people talking at a party and was just sort of mm. drawing a cartoon of them. Um, I, I don't know that that's actually. It, what yeah, it was. they weren't connected. And the, the 
but they, maybe they'd appear on the same page or something, the overheard conversations in a Jules Pfeiffer. Story. Yeah, they weren't connected at all. I'm just, uh, right. But, but yeah, you're just saying they had the same kind of feel. Because why did I think he had something to do with some more well-known cartoon, like a feature film? Well, you know, he wrote a feature film of Popeye. Yeah. Based on L.C. Seeger's comic strip and the Max Fleischer cartoons. He also wrote uh, Alain René's I Want to Go Home. Ah, uh, yes, I've seen that film. It's not bad. And the star of that movie is Adolph Green. And it's in, it's it's a René film that's mostly in English, if I remember right. And Adolph Green was the... Um, librettist and screenwriter for a number of great Hollywood musicals and Broadway reviews. He wrote Singing in the Rain with his wife, Betty Comden. It's Always Fair Weather. I think he wrote On the Town. Right. Uh, um, But an occasional actor. He's the, I think, I want to say he's the producer of the TV show in my favorite year. But uh, that's that's a... um, that's a pretty good movie. That's that's a, a, most Rene films are worth seeing. I mean, I'd say all of them, but uh, uh, that's a um, that's a pretty good one. I was right. He illustrated the book of the Phantom Tollbooth. He is the books. He is the Phantom Tollbooth illustrator. Oh right. And I don't know that that translated. I can't remember. Well, Chuck Jones did the did directed the movie, or at least the animated parts. And I don't. And I have a feeling that he went on his own. And I don't know if they didn't base them on the yeah, Pfeiffer like yeah. I can't imagine because I've seen the movie and it has a real uh, Grinch type look to it. You know, it's, it looks like a Chuck Jones. Right. Although I guess you know when Chuck Jones did the Grinch, he did take a lot of inspiration from Dr. Seuss. But he's and Pfeiffer is also he's also like a. Um, Like what Scorsese is to cinema, he is to comics, right? Isn't he like a, isn't he like a bit of a comics historian? Like he knows everything about cartoons and comics. Yeah, well, he started off working with that guy Will Eisner. Oh, the Spirit. Yeah. Guy. So he's, he goes way back. Yeah. And yeah, I do think he's taken an interest as a. Yeah, like he's a, he's a you know the grand old statesman of. Right. Right. But so anyway, so growing up, I knew Jules Pfeiffer uh, almost entirely from his Village Voice weekly strip. Um, But these two movies, I mean, so this seems to me like 1971 and these two movies, Little Murders and Carnalologists, sort of like the uh, apex of uh, Jules Pfeiffer's uh, career as a screenwriter um, and also as, you know, it's the high watermark of any movies that were made from material that he had anything to do with. Um, right. I mean, uh, it's interesting that he, that, that 1971 was a big year for him. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, he went off in other directions. I don't think he was. Yeah. It wasn't like, it wasn't like screenplay after screenplay. As far as I know, I mean, it's quite possible he was working on a ton of things and that never got made. But I think the next thing after carnal knowledge is, that he gets credit for is Popeye. Well, in both cases of these movies, uh, Little Murders and Carnal Knowledge, they neither one of them started off as screenplays, and That's right. they weren't. Hit, neither one were, were intended to be films. No, although Carnal Knowledge never got beyond a kind of 
nascent form of of being a stage play. It was Mike Nichols really took charge and you know and made made it into a movie. Right. I think he Pfeiffer gave um, Nichols the the script, the which uh, which was a, supposed to be a play. Right. And Nichols said, "This is this is a movie, not a play." Right. Um, and with um, with Little Murders, is there mo- even a more convoluted sort of um, journey? Uh, in that he first envisioned and started to, and and perhaps might have, well, no, uh, I've been reading a lot and listening to a lot of Jules Pfeiffer talk about these things. Mm. And he, he, he was in Little Murders. Let's talk about Little Murders first. Yes. So let's go chronologically. He uh, was inspired, if that's the word, by the JFK assassination, uh, which is 63. Right. And then the... Uh, week later or so the um oswald killing by jack ruby um those two things inspired him to write little murders he was he was really struck with the idea of these of gun violence and right. and and the state of the country and and the idea that you know people were just getting shot left and right yeah i get the feeling like what moved him most was just the fact that you know, even though it it really did disrupt and disturb American life, the, both of those killings that you know we could just we could watch them both on TV and then you know be expected to you know sit around the dinner table at this you know the next you know the, that evening or even the next morning you know right. But so he started to write it as a novel uh, and took a ton of notes. And then I don't know how far he got, but at some point, I think early on, he realized that it was it was terrible. The the the, ter- the novel, his ideas for the novel, or maybe his first draft of a novel, was not doing any of the things he was trying to do. It wasn't necessarily the the story that became the play in the movie. It was it was maybe something different, or maybe something that really did incorporate the. The Kennedy assassination? Uh, I don't think so. I do think it was this story. I didn't hear. I haven't read or heard him say anything about like a, a different plot or different characters. Uh, but it, that's possible. Um, the story of Alfred and what's Patsy? Patsy, right? Um, and so then he it turned it into a, a play, which I think he was happy with his with his script for the play. And it was it was produced as a Broadway show, right? First Broadway didn't didn't go to off Broadway, went straight to Broadway. Yeah, I think there was I think there was this sort of an out of town run, maybe in Boston, uh, which they right okay that happens, would do. Yeah. But uh, it opened on Broadway with Elliot Gould, right? With Elliot Gould, um, and it was apparently a complete bust, uh, and it only ran for a week. Um, and, and Pfeiffer tells a couple stories about that Broadway run, run first that the final dress rehearsal, uh, before in those days, critics, theater critics would actually come on opening night and review the show as it opened these days. And it's been this way for a, a while. Critics come much earlier during previews, um, and, and, and review the version that's in previews. So. I think productions have to make sure that they're really 
up and running and firing on all cylinders yeah. uh, much earlier in their sort of preview run. Right, but sometimes uh, those sneaky New York critics go to the other cities and watch. You know, oh, that's Boston, even worse. Yeah, sure. And they'll and they'll pan it. I think I remember uh, hearing. I think that's what happened. There was a stage production of uh, Confederacy of Dunces with Nick Offerman that happened. Um, I think it was the same thing in Boston, and the New York critic snuck up to see it and and savaged it in the paper, something like that. I think something something like that happened. It never even made it to New York. Yikes, that's too bad. Uh, although, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so Pfeiffer tells the story of that the final dress rehearsal he attended, and it was fantastic, which he knew he. He went and, and, and drank a lot afterward because he knew that a great final dress rehearsal meant that opening night would be a bust uh, for some reason. Like he, he understood that to be the case, that if you have a great dress rehearsal, your first performance is going to be no good. Right. Um, uh, which I used to hear when I was in a band that, uh, you know, that if your rehearsals are going well, your show is not going to live up to those rehearsal. Um, and I don't know if that was true or not, but I'm sure it was on occasion. Uh, so there was that. So the the play did get poor reviews, and um, nobody came. Like there was there were there was very limited attendance. But on the second to last day of what turned out to be its week long run on Broadway, um, uh, he said there were about eleven people in the audience, and they were all younger people. Like I, you know, I think he's trying to say that they were sort of hippies, counterculture types who had somehow made it to this production, and they were the only ones basically in the audience. And that they loved it, and they gave it a standing ovation. And he, and again, he was like, "Ah, yes, this is what the show should be. This is the perfect audience for it." And of course, it closed the next day. Uh, but interestingly, a production was already being mounted uh, at the same time in the UK by the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, they had already like said, "We want to put this production on as well." And uh, so, and and they were just behind this Broadway production. They were sort of like, it's, if I'm looking at the timeline correctly, they were only like weeks, weeks away from, I guess, launching maybe rehearsals or maybe previews. Um, and Pfeiffer traveled to the UK and talked to the director of that production and gave him all kinds of notes about what he thought worked and didn't work about the Broadway production. I think this, this director didn't take any of those notes to heart. Um, and Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer is interesting when you, when you listen to him talk because he vacillates between saying I was wrong about everything mm. and they, I, every time I get involved with the production, it's a mistake. And so I try to stay away from productions at all costs because I'm the worst at coming up with stuff. And then the other half of the time when you listen to him talk, he's talking about how, wow, I was right about everything, you know, and hmm. I predicted all this stuff and I, you know, everything that I said would happen came to be. And he's a legendary curmudgeon, right? Isn't he? I don't, I don't know. I've never, I don't, I've never heard these interviews. He didn't, he doesn't come off that way so much. Eh, not really. I mean, in a way that, uh, I mean, he's a, he's a New Yorker, you know, he's yeah. got that whole thing. He's, you know, yeah, he's got that sort of, uh, you know, uh, Algonquin roundtable sort of vibe. Oh, so him. he's yeah, a little almost almost like a, a classy or a, like a Fran Lebowitz yeah. type. Uh, you know, he's a, definitely a curmudgeon. 
a curmudgeon, but like sort of a, a happy curmudgeon, like oh, a sort good. of like a, a generous curmudgeon, you know, and a, a talented curmudgeon. Yeah. And uh, yes, I mean, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, whatever reputation Elliot Gould also has, you know, sort of. Yeah. Like a like an, an, an asshole, an obnoxious I, well, asshole. Well, maybe in the seven, maybe around this time he did when he made the movie. I met Elliot Gould about eight, eight years ago. In fact, I introduced him before a screening of Little Murders at the Torino Film Festival and spent uh, an hour just talking alone with him either earlier that night or later that night. And uh, very, very, very sweet guy. Right. Well, no. And, and for a long time, Elliot Gould has been on this sort of rehabilitation tour. Yeah. Where he's like, I know, you know, every time Elliot, you hear Elliot Gould talking now, he talks about, I was the biggest asshole. Yeah. I think I'm pretty sure he said that in my conversations right. with him. Unprompted. He, he just right. I, put that I, out there. Right. And when Elliot Gould talks about little murders, he talks about it sort of being the beginning of the end for him. You know, that, uh, that, that right after little murders, he went to do the Bergman film, the touch. Right which turned into a huge disaster critically and commercially. And, uh, and, and he went from being on the top of the heap of Hollywood stars to being like unemployable. Right. Um, and I, you know, he, I haven't heard him. I haven't heard him get into specifics about the other factors that were going on with him that made, that gave him that turn of, of, of fate, you know, that, that got him from the top to the bottom other than, you know, it, I'm sure it wasn't just that he had a couple of films that didn't do as well. I think a lot of it was his attitude and his. Yeah, that's that's what that's what I hear. But the truth is, is that he was he was a leading man, a viable one, or maybe if not a viable one, but you know, a lead in movies for another ten years, maybe more, twelve, thirteen years. Regularly, every year there was at least one movie. There's a lot of bad movies in there. Altman tries to really put him on top again a couple right. of years after this with Long Goodbye and then California Split. And, right. Uh, and he's got to, you know, plays himself in Nashville. And those are, you know, now revered as like the top of his, you know, his, probably his two best movies. And, uh, and then there's, you know, Capricorn One, which is probably even the closest thing he had to a hit movie, right, during those 10 years after MASH. And, uh, you know, and then it's just, I think it's at some point by the early eighties, you know, it's like, well, he's not, this is, you you can't build a movie around this guy anymore. And he's not even a good seventh or eighth or ninth choice to be a leading man. You know, he's, he's, they're not even thinking of him that anymore. And and he becomes pretty much a kind of character actor by the, by the mid eighties and starts to do TV shows that the original ER, which doesn't take off and the comedy like sitcom version. Yeah. Right. Also yeah. with George Clooney. Right. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen an episode of that. I remember they, for some reason they were one summer, they were rerunning them years after it, the show had been on and canceled and they were rerunning them during the day. I think like on network TV, like CBS or whatever channel it was on. But even more interesting about Elliot Gould to me is that his whole his whole rise to being what he what he describes he was the top Hollywood star yeah. in the world was really just based on just two films, Mash and Bob and Carol. And Ted yeah, that's Alice. right. Um, so it's it, it's uh, after which or I think is when he got offered this three or four picture deal with 20th Century Fox. Right. Um, 
which I think turned into um, what movies? Well, is is uh, getting straight? No, that's a yeah. Sony from Move. Oh. Move is Move. one of them. Yeah, and Little Murders, and then he produced Little Murders. Did he produce Move also? And there was going to be another film in the Little Murders package, right? That never got made. There was like there were two movies that he was going to. The, what is it, Gould Brodsky production? Yeah, Gould Brodsky. So he actually started off as a tap dancer, and then he he started off on Broadway right. uh, in sort of musicals, which is interesting. I can't I can't remember seeing. Have you ever seen Elliot Gould sort of do a straight song and dance number like a like a, where he's really singing? Gosh, no, I don't. Um, no, I mean, he, he sings a little bit in, uh, with George Siegel in California Split. I remember that. Right. So in 69, Gould started his own production company with Jack Brodsky, Brodsky Gould Productions. The company made two films, The Assistant, which is based- No, they were going to make The Assistant. It never got made. Oh. A great novel by Bernard Malamud. I think it eventually got made decades later with, uh, I think pretty sure Armin Mueller styles in it, but well, it- Right. It's a pretty undistinguished version. Great right. book, though. And Little Murders, which turned into his first film under that production right. company. Uh, and then they announced, in 70, they announced plans to make The Dick from a, the novel by Bruce J. Friedman. That was never made. Right. And then that same year, Gould reached a new level of prominence, playing one of the four leads in Mazursky's Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Um, which was released in September of 69, which was a huge success critically and commercially. Um, and then in in March 69, Gould signed a non-exclusive four-picture contract with 20th Century Fox, the first of which was MASH, and the second was MOVE, and those were both released in 70. And then Gould's other films of 70 included the Richard Rush comedy drama Getting Straight, uh, which also starred Candace Bergen as right. his girlfriend. Uh, and um, uh, also released that year was Move, uh, co-starring Paula Prentice, which was a critical and commercial flop, Gould's first, apparently. And I Love My Wife in 70 with Brenda Vaccaro, uh, for which Gould had apparently turned down McCabe and Mrs. Miller. To do that movie. Yeah, and he apparently also turned down the lead in Peck and Paw's Straw Dogs. Could be. So anyway, back to Little Murders. Yeah. Uh, uh, after the successful, so this Royal Shakespeare Company production was successful. Right. And then in 69, Circle in the Square decided they were going to mount a production off-Broadway. And they got Alan Arkin to direct their off-Broadway production. Um, which um, starred, uh, I'm trying to remember, hang on a second, I have this stuff. Because a lot of that Circle and Square production featured the cast that wound up um, in the film. Uh, John Corcus, right. um, who plays Patsy's younger brother, uh, was apparently a student at the Circle in the Square school. So I guess Circle in the Square was not only a sort of production company for off-Broadway and it was a theater, but it was it also ran an acting school. 
Yeah. Um, and and Arkin used John Corcus as a student to to help him uh, audition actors for for that for Little Murders for the movie for the for the product for the oh, stage for the, production off Broadway right had him read with people. Uh, yeah. All the time, and 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 read the part of the of the younger brother in order to you know have audition scenes, and um, you know probably saw he's Arkin says maybe 150 200 actors for for those roles, um, and by the end of the process had fallen in love with John Corcus's performance as as the younger brother, uh, and then said I would like you to actually play this role in the production, and he says. Uh, John Corcus uh, turned around, walked into a bathroom, and like screamed to the top of his lungs uh, for about a minute in excitement over this development. <laughs> and then he wound up uh, in the film. Uh, John Corcus had an interesting career. He st- his first film was The Out of Towners. Uh, the thing I remembered him for, uh, at least when I watched it again this time, you know, I was immediately like, oh, I've seen this guy in something recently. And he's the, I think he's the editor-in-chief in Between the Lines, the Joan Micklin Silver film. Yeah. Which I'm a big fan of. Right. I am not. Yeah. <laughs> but he was. he's also, and I can't believe I didn't realize this until I was doing the research, he's also in a film that we both like and are showing later this semester, Two Minute Warning. Yeah, um, we'll have to look for him in there. I, You know, last time I... I didn't notice him. I think I could be wrong, but here's what I think. I think he's the guy who David Grow uh, steals a girlfriend from. Ah, okay. The young guy who's that? Yeah, and who is that? It's um, his name is Jeffrey. In this, yeah, but who's playing the girl? I remember it's like some TV actress, right? Like, yeah, or somebody else in the. Is she somebody else in the cast's wife? Maybe. Uh, we'll look at that later. Yeah. But he was also in Catch-22. He was in Cinderella Liberty. He was in Day of the Dolphin. Uh, so it's interesting that, that... It's interesting how many connections there are between these two movies, yeah. even though they're not directed by the same people and they're not produced by the same studio. No, he was a theater actor who could clearly you know, hold his own as a character on screen, and I think people were interested in him, but it just never... He was never in a giant hit. Looks yeah. sounds like he 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 feels to me, especially in Little Murders, like he's got this sort of young Randy Quaid vibe. Yeah, that's so you, pretty good. You could see Randy Quaid at the same time yeah. doing that role. Yeah. Um, and somebody else, somebody else who had that role, uh, uh, during the Off Broadway run. What's the little brother's name? Is it Denny? No. Uh, Kenny. Kenny. Kenny was also played by, oh, Christopher Guest. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. The off brought, so the, this Circle in the Square production ran for 400 performances and the cast changed over the course of those, uh, performances so that, uh, Linda Lavin, I th- was, was, uh, Patsy at some mm-hmm. point. Um, she's a real... She's a real analog performer to Marsha Rod, isn't she? Yeah. Um, and um, I'm trying to remember who else. Uh, there were some other interesting actors, but Christopher Guest, I think it was his. It was his New York 
theater debut mm. was uh, before as, he joined the National Lampoon troupe, I think. Yeah. By the way, Circle in the Square is now considered a a Broadway venue. It's in the same facility as the Gershwin Theater, which has been showing Wicked for twenty years. But uh, I, this summer, I saw uh, Lawrence Fishburne and Sam Rockwell in uh, American Buffalo at Circle in the Square. So it's right there in the heart of Broadway. Um. Oh well, that's that's uh, cool. I don't know. Sad, I don't know at one point that happened, but you know, I know they were always attracting big names, and that was probably a reason for it. Sure, getting permanently housed on Broadway. Well, good for them. Good for them. Good for them. Good for them. Let's back up a minute and talk about um, our history with these films, or first with Little Murders. Well, I'm kind of interested to hear where you. Where you think this movie's coming from? I know we talked about the Kennedy assassination and gun violence, but there's, I mean, clearly it evolved into something more. Well, somebody described it, and I can't remember if it's Elliot Gould or Arkin or Pfeiffer. It probably wouldn't have been Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer is pretty clear throughout any time he talks about it that this, that, you know, it was a, it was supposed to be a statement about a, a, a sort of a, a warning about where he thought America might be heading, hmm. um, uh, uh, a cautionary tale, a, a, you know, a vision of a of a you know a dystopian society that he was trying to warn people against, and then of course, as he says, we got there, and then more, and that the that the film now in 2022, 23 is as relevant or more relevant and, and less of an absurdist film and more of a, this is, this is where we are today. It's, it's funny to hear that that's what he's kind of stuck to because um, it reminds me of that, you know, that famous New Yorker cover where, you know, how New Yorkers view the rest of the country and was the country or the world. I, I can't remember, but, you know, with the majority of it being New York, because it's such a, to me, it's not about what's going, what's happening with the country. It's really about how New Yorkers view New York during that time. You know, it's very much, because guns don't even really kind of enter the story even until the second half. Uh, well, it's about, it's about, you know, how crazy it is to, to be in New York at that time. It's like this, you know, it's, 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 we we've, we've talked about this before it's that you know it's that the whole list of post you know kitty genovese movies you know that that are just about you know how how chaotic and randomly deadly it is to to live in new york you know the incident and the film it reminds me the most of is where's papa and yeah and i you know i totally would have thought you know if if pfeiffer had had said any of that stuff, I would yeah. have been like, yeah, of course, obvious. But he really does stick to his guns about it being about Kennedy and Oswald and where he saw the countries going. He doesn't talk about New York at all. It's just really. that, I mean, it's just, that's going to be his point of view because he ne he's never left New York, right? <laughs> right. But the thing that he, the thing that he was doing was he, so he was building his statement, his commentary is about that, is about these, about how human life has been, you know, 
the value of human life has been reduced to, to almost nothing and that people don't care about other people anymore. And, um, you know, that, 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 that country, uh, you know, is full of rage and sadness. And this is how it's going to express that rage and sadness eventually, if not sooner. Um, but he talks about how he, what he, this, what he was trying to do. He was on, what he was trying to do specifically with the story and the structure of this, uh, of the piece itself to make that point. He was, he was building it as a sort of, uh, satire of of Broadway shows at the time, uh, that the romantic comedy Broadway shows, which were all about um, bringing home a right. boyfriend to meet the parents right. who's not suitable, and and how this how this how the the family and the situation ends up reshaping the boyfriend, or the boyfriend ends up reshaping everyone, you know. And I think that that. You know, also dates that he doesn't talk about this, but it's also, you know, all these screwball film comedies of the 30s sure. and 40s where, you know, it's like the, the you know. You can't oh. take it with you and everything. Right. Um, and that, uh, and I, and this is, I, I do love this about the film and the play and everything, um, is that it, you know, it takes you down that path and you think you're watching that kind of a thing and sort of a funnier you know, maybe a more satirical and and nasty, uh, jaded version of that story, and then flips it. You know, it's as if uh, three quarters of the way through some romantic screwball comedy or Broadway show, that uh, the, the the girlfriend is killed, yeah. <laughs> and it goes down this completely other path. That and I do think yeah, the care and the main character becomes uh, catatonic. Right. Although interestingly, the uh, Gould Alfred's trajectory is that he's catatonic, and she she works. Patsy works to wake him up out of this state that he's in, where he doesn't feel anything, he doesn't care about anything, he's completely passive in all things. the The film starts with Alfred. The film starts. Let's talk about this. The film starts. Um, with a shot of Patsy in bed. And every time I've watched it recently, it's reminded me of the opening of Le Samurai. Did, did that occur to you mm. at all? It's such a similar. No, I was thinking about where's Papa, which also begins with the, the hero in bed and slowly waking up to the absurdity of uh, his or her daily routine. Yes. And and it does, but I think there's something about the way the shot is framed with the bed up against the right hand wall of the frame and the windows and the in you know that you're looking at the windows and you can't even really you're not even really aware of the person in the bed maybe at first and then it you know you slow the person slowly That's wakes interesting. up. Interesting, probably unlikely that Alan Arkin saw it though. I don't think it got released in the U.S. until seventy two or seventy three. The Samurai. Yeah. Well. One interesting, one other interesting thing, I mean, I think there's lots of interesting things about the production history of this thing, is that uh, Gould purchased the rights to it, um, reached out to Pfeiffer to write a screenplay. Pfeiffer's like, I, every time I get involved with this, I just screw it up, have somebody else write the screenplay. God bless you. Sounds like it would be a great idea. But, but Gould uh, reached out to Godard. Uh, that was his choice for director and, and said, Jean-Luc, I want you to make this little murders film. Here's the script for the play. 
And Godard, according to Gould, uh, wrote back or called him back and said, you know, Charles M. Schultz and Jules Pfeiffer are like my two favorite writers. <laughs> and so this is great. This is right up my alley. And then Gould, more than one time, repeats this uh, story about meeting up with Godard in New York to try to uh, sort of uh, finalize the deal uh, and was getting some kind of pressure. At some point he said to Godard, I'm going to need you to like be there for me at some point. Like I'm, I'm fighting for you to direct this film and I'm pushing through some, you know, studio stuff. Um, You know, at a certain point though, I'm going to need sort of a reciprocal thing from you i'm gonna need you to say like uh-huh. and Godard s- said to him listen you know my wife and kids sometimes ask me to tell them that i love them and i tell them to go fuck themselves <laughs> and uh and that gould said well that's great that's really strong i'm not i'm not really there yet um wow. and that was the end of yeah, that sounds like a typical Godardian response um uh, he wasn't about to play any kind of corporate game, you know, even if Elliot Gould was asking him to. Wasn't, But wasn't there an an adaptation submitted by Benton and Newman, Robert Benton and David Newman? I didn't see their names attached, and every time... Yeah, maybe that was something else. Maybe. And I've heard Pfeiffer and Gould talk about this, and Arkin, uh, that there was a screenplay that was commissioned, and it was terrible. And right. When, and... and 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 they gave that screenplay to Pfeiffer to say, look, this is what we've got. Yeah, I and, think I read it was by Benton and Newman, which is interesting because they wrote Bonnie and Clyde, and their their first choice of director was Goodard, and then Truffaut, and then became Arthur Penn. So, yeah. So when when Pfeiffer saw what a disaster this other screenplay was, he said, "Okay, I'll I'll never mind what I said. I'll I'll write the screenplay." And the the changes so the, the the stage production and I have not read the play, but the play all takes place in Patsy's family apartment. That's what I figured. I figured all of that stuff in the movie that shows Patsy and Alfred meeting was written for the movie. That it just probably begins with with Patsy's parents. And- it begins with Patsy, I believe. It begins with the night that she brings Alfred home. Right. Guess who's coming to dinner? Right. This lunatic who takes pictures of shit. Right. And uh, uh, is basically like, you know, unemotionless. Already almost catatonic. Right. Um, and and Pfeiffer says that he thought, okay, the, I'll open this up and turn it into a movie by presenting all the stuff that you don't see in the play leading up to that moment. And he says that that, you know, that, that that's a big regret, that he thinks that that was a mistake, that none of that stuff in the first 18 minutes of the film works particularly well and is interesting or is necessary. Um, uh, he doesn't come out and say, like, I would have started it where I started. If I had to do it over again, I would start where I start uh, in the in the stage production of it. Um, and I think uh, I understand that feeling. I mean, I think that it, that that there's nothing particularly funny about the first 18 or 20 minutes of the film before we get to um, Patsy's family. But I think it's helpful. I like, I like that. It's, I like that weird that that I like the openness. I like that there are outdoor scenes. I like the 
it's unclear to me uh, how much of you know how much of the story of their meet cute went, and, and even Pfeiffer says like the the meet cute in this is that he's getting mugged. that Alfred's getting mugged, and she comes to rescue him. He runs away and yeah. she gets beat up. Uh, I'm assuming that they tell that story in the play, but I do think it's fun to see that, um, and I think it's helpful to. Uh, I think it also, I think all these things work. I mean, I think the whole film is working towards the moment where she is killed. You know, that that's, that's what, that's what, that's what we're being faked out into not expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then that's what we're dealing with uh, for, you know, the last 30 minutes, the last 30 minutes and, 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 you know, Pfeiffer's main objective in writing this piece right. is to, is to talk about that. Yeah, shock us and then let us kind of wallow in it for a half an hour. All right, and then the other, so so that's different. Um, also, in the stage production, Alfred does not travel to Chicago. There isn't that scene with his parents. Um, and then Pfeiffer talks about that the third act on stage is much more sort of experimental... Like what we see in the movie after Patsy is shot is is Elliot Gould's character Alfred going to Central Park, um, you know, in this and walk and on the subway. There's all these scenes of him in his blood spattered um, clothes. Um, he has his camera, and apparently, uh, there's a the Central Park scene at the end of the film or towards the end of the film before he returns back to Patsy's family with the gun. Uh, there's a scene that I think was shot uh, that they then cut uh, where Gould ends up beating somebody up in Central Park with his camera. Like we get to see Gould as crazed aggressor. homicidal aggressor uh, before he arrives in the apartment. At some point they realize it's much more effective to not have that and to and so that when he shows up at the apartment with this rifle it's like oh wait what's going on and you right. still don't know exactly what Gould has on his mind because you haven't seen him you know as an aggressor or as a, a violent sure. person uh so those are the big changes or additions or you know variations from the stage production um the thing that i uh was fascinated to hear uh, Pfeiffer talk about was that uh, his vision of Alfred's parents, uh, he saw them as, uh, and his, you know, his whole, when he was writing it and what he thought was going to happen when they cast it, he was thinking of those, of that couple as like William Powell and Myrna Loy, much more sophisticated, you know, erudite, like cocktail hour, social. And it's, and when you watch, and watching the scene uh, with that, in mind, uh, you know, and, and, and Arkin and, and those two, and Doris Roberts. And I can't, who, I can't remember who's the guy who plays John Randolph. Is it John Randolph? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's fascinating because they go in a completely other direction with their performances, but which I think, uh, gives it a very s- strange quality that scene. Well, their, their intellectuality, their intellectualism is, a, is there is what they're using to hide from the world with, you know, they've got their, they, you know, they've got examples from 
literature and cultural history to explain away everything, um, except for uh, how they raised their son and their relationship to their son. To that, they have no memory or uh, answers for their son. It's, you know, in other words, you're on your own. It's, it's chaos. You know, they can, they can drop, uh, you know, a million names from, you know, everything from, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks to Kurt Vonnegut, but, you know, they, they, it's just, it's just their blanket that they're hiding under. Right. And I, and you also, and it's also, I feel like you must, he must be playing in some way with, uh, um, uh, the McCarthy era, um, the mm. way that they, I, 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 the way that they play it, and the fact that they feel like these New York kind of liberal Jews in a way that that if they'd gotten like Powell and Loy or people like that would have played a whole different way. But when it, it's fun, it's uh, the funniest part of the scene to me is is their reluctance to talk to a tape recorder that they don't want right. themselves recorded, and it seems like what they settle into is like that they don't want to answer these questions and they start, and it's true. It works both ways. It works in showing them as complete failures as parents, but it also is this very funny, I think thing where they keep saying, I don't remember. Right. I don't remember. I don't remember. Um, which, you know, makes it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's what it feels like to me in the, in the movie as well. So where were we? Well, so, Oh, so these differences. So, so, I, you know, we were talking the other day, and you were talking about, uh, and I would say that I think that I think that it's safe to say that I like this movie more than you do, yeah, and that you might like Carnal Knowledge more than I do. Could be. We'll get into it. Um, but I would say that that when I watch this film, the absurdist, I looked up absurdist to figure out if I'm understanding the word the way. Yeah, and and I have a different take on even that that I talked to you about the other day. Man, I, I think I think I've realized what it is that I that bugs me the most about Little Murders, and I, and you know, and it's 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 to me an easy enough to watch film, but you know, I, we were talking, and I said I, I feel like that kind of absurdist comedy where you know completely surreal stuff happens; it's hard to take. But of course. You know, I'm wrong about that because I love, you know, the Zucker brothers and some of those Woody Allen films from the same time and the Marx brothers and, you know, that stuff's great. Um, it's it's it, it's when it's a certain kind of stage play uh, that, that I think, you know, it's when they try and do it on film, it, it, it doesn't always translate well. But that's not what I think is the overriding problem with little murders uh or with carnal knowledge and i think i have the same problem with most films but i think with carnal knowledge it's relieved a little bit by what mike nichols brings to it um we can talk about that later but as as far as little murders goes um i just feel like it's 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 an angry movie uh that is piling shit onto characters without any kind of relief as if they're not really people that they're just, you know, characters you can do this to, and we're not supposed to feel anything for them except 
maybe pity, uh, and that is very condescending to me. I just feel like there's a lot of screaming and a lot of, you know, hysteria and, and anger and um and I and and it just feels kind of uh unrelieved. I mean there are some movies that are angry that I like. I'll tell you another film that 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 it immediately made me think of that I'm an outlier in disliking uh big film of the seventies is network. Um and I love in network I love the absurdity of the of the opening half hour or so all the crazy stuff that goes on with Peter Finch and where then where the network goes with the shows and stuff. I, I, I absolutely hate the end of the film with all the monologues and the speeches and the screaming and like the movie becomes about like uh, old William Holden being angry with Faye Dunaway because she likes TV. You know, it's like, it feels like a very like angry old New York white man movie you know um and uh and so in in uh in little murders you know the alan arkin's performance is strange i really hate lou jacoby screaming at them at them it just feels like really obvious and dragged out and just kind of depressing you know you know roger ebert had a lot of these little and Roger Ebert loved Little Murders and Network, I think, too. But he had a lot of these little phrases, some of which I completely reject. But the one I always really liked is that there are no, uh, or, the, you know, uh, all, uh, sorry, all depressing movies are bad, uh, or all bad movies are depressing. Any movie that's depressing is not good, you know. So when people say, oh, that movie depressed, it's so depressing, but it's really good. It's like, no, no if it's truly honest um you know i don't think there's anything depressing about it and when i see little murders i just feel like eh, it feels a little loaded you know where's papa is the movie that you know where's papa with the with the original ending is is you know maybe going too far but you know when you let trish vandeveer and george siegel drive off at the end um it, feels like yeah that's that's where you want this movie to go there's some you know there's some hope there's you don't feel like there's some godlike figure piling crap on top of these characters you know and um you know i don't uh you know i just feel i just feel depressed when i watch little murders i, I like i like i really like the idea of taking of you know the classic screwball comedy and something like you can't take it with you and turning it on its head and bringing it into you know and that must have been fun and and i still think the movie is worth seeing and and i think it's fun in the context of you know all, what what 70s movies were doing but it's a bit of a drag yeah uh i hear that i don't agree i don't i that's not what i take from it i do i do think that I, the difference I love where's Papa I think I, I enjoy it a lot more than I do little murders but I also fully enjoy little murders and think it works like gangbusters with whatever with everything that's it's doing um I think that maybe it's wrong to label little murders which it usually is as like a comedy even of any kind I think there are very funny 
performances in it and very and some very funny moments. And I agree with you. I I don't understand Alan Arkin's performance. Um, he was he didn't want to do it. Yeah. Uh, he really was like uh, you know up until almost the day that they shot the scene, he was like I you know I'm so busy directing this film, I haven't had a chance to really figure out this character. I don't want to do it. He almost seems to be cracking up at times. He almost seems to be, he's just not committed. Well, here's the, here's his story is that the issue, the issue, one of the big issues was he had a lot to say. You know, it's really, you, you get, the, there are the characters, they're the main characters in the movie, Alfred and Patsy and Patsy's family, uh, Carol, the father, Played by Vincent Gardinia in it, and maybe this is the maybe this is the divide. I think you either love Vincent Gardinia in this movie and think it's one of the great comic performances or just performance and the best you've ever seen Vincent Gardinia do anything, or that it doesn't work for you. And he's very funny. I like him very much. Although I, I like his one scene in Where's Papa even more. Yeah. Oh, that's great too. But um, but other than and 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 um, uh, Patsy's mother and Patsy's brother. I'm sorry. Who's the actress who plays Patsy's mother? Elizabeth Wilson. Elizabeth Wilson, who I think is fantastic. In yeah, this movie she's too. good. She she gets the final moment of the film too. But the structure of the movie is, aside from those characters, everyone everyone else you encounter has got one scene. You know, they they come on, they do a monologue. Yeah. And I'm talking about Lou Jacoby, who I also think so. Yeah. Lou Jacoby, I. That's a performance, and that's a scene that I think watching at home by yourself is really can be really annoying. Yeah. But when we so we showed Little Murders at Cinematheque a couple weeks ago, and that that scene got the biggest laughs hmm. uh, of the night from the audience. That plays really really well in in twenty twenty two in Wisconsin uh, <laughs> an audience that. De- I don't know. There were certainly very mixed reactions to the film in general uh, by this audience, but that that was a scene that everyone seemed to love, and it and it plays really well um, in a theater. So that's nice. So the Lou Jacoby, there's Donald Sutherland as the sort of hippie. Yeah, who I think is very funny. That 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 also played really great. well. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's good because you, you, they play it off the off the crowd quite a bit you know that's actually a pretty well directed scene that you know that he's just you know it, it's it's not it's not playing so absurd like you can believe he would like a hippie kind of you know non-denominational reverend would give exactly this kind of flip floppy non-committed speech and just completely puzzle everybody marcia rod's reaction is the best she's kind of like nodding her head and smiling but you can tell her eyes are just going all over the place like she doesn't know where he's going yeah and she can't even and her you know she's so appalled by it ultimately that she can barely take her vows you know she doesn't really you know say what she's supposed to say (laughs) she she can't even get the words out it's the first time that she's at a loss for words in, in the movie i mean the only time she's at a loss for words um but but then Alan Arkin also has this one scene, which is basically a monologue where he's, uh, in a way, so so Alan Arkin, uh, one of the things he said was that there was a lot of dialogue for him to learn this yeah. whole speech, and he couldn't do. He was walking around the block over and over again the night before the thing, and he couldn't remember it. And then he decided to just use that 
And so when you see his character sort of like stop in the middle of a sentence and just say like nonsense yeah. syllables and things, that's that's Arkin using the fact that he couldn't really remember all of the lines uh, and using that in the in the thing. I don't think it works. Yeah. I think he's over the top and he's absurdist and over the top in a way that nobody else in the movie is. And what I what I what I wanted to say uh, for the last ten or fifteen minutes hearing you talk is that despite Pfeiffer denying it and me saying, Yeah, it's about the countryside about New York, I do think that maybe maybe another thing that separates us is that this movie this movie so many of the details and so many of the characterizations ring perfectly true to me growing up in New York that yeah. families that were living, you know, four people and, 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 you know, in New York rents were always so high that you didn't, you never moved out of your, your family dwelling. And if you were and there, and I knew plenty of kids whose families were living in apartments, m- much like Patsy's family apartment in this, all of the furniture is like, Oh God, yes. I remember all this stuff, all these sort of Avon bottles and yeah. tchotchkes, and that, interestingly, that apartment is not an actual apartment. That is a set that they built in a New York soundstage. Um, but it looks, you would never know. It, it's its beautiful. I, I think every detail of the bric-a-brac and the furniture and the layout and the lighting, that reminds me of my childhood and the way that people talk to each other in families and, and you know amongst family and friends, the yelling the it, it only seems like the most slight exaggeration of people that I knew in New York. The fathers that were like that, mothers that were like that, brothers and sisters who were like that. Um, it's not that yelling that upsets me. It's the it's more of the Blue Jacoby, Blue Jacoby, and then later on Arkin. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and I and I'm with you on Arkin. Uh, like I'm know, not crazy about the Ned Beatty screaming speech in Network either. I know that's everybody's favorite, but you know it just seems to me like. Ah, shut up. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about the Nicholson screaming and carnal knowledge yeah. later on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so, I, I, you know, it's it it, it it doesn't strike me as absurdist. Maybe it would have a little bit more had I seen it in 71 and been, you know, of age. Maybe I would have thought, like, this is... And, and it is true that New York did feel like that, like that, that, that... That there was danger around every corner, and that you, you know, it was really a, a a scary place to live. As much as much life and vibrancy was going on, there was an equal amount of, you know, filth and yeah. and anger and and um, fear, fear and 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 poverty, which led to all kinds of of bad situations. I, uh, my friend and I were walking just a couple blocks from my house in Brooklyn and I was probably 10 or 11 and we got mugged by uh, a group of maybe 13 or 14 year old girls. <laughs> they like <laughs> jumped us and, and forced us to hand uh, our, I think we had like digital watches like these, you know, Casio, whatever they, they, they took our watches from us. Um, but that was scary. You know, they were like choking us out and all kinds of stuff. Wow. And then I remember another time, uh, my friend Chad and I were in Times Square. Uh, we'd gone into the city to see, I think, I'm sure we must have been there to see a movie, but we were wandering around Times Square looking um, in the window of like an electronics store. 
um, and some guy came up to Chad and said, um, hey, I'm selling, I got joints. Uh, I'll sell you a joint for a buck. And, you know, we, again, we were like 13 years old. Nobody was smoking. We weren't looking to smoke yeah. joints or anything. And Chad was like, no, no, thanks. And the guy was like, well, do I got to beat the money out of you? <laughs> and uh, so Chad coughed up a dollar, and uh, this guy, like, threw it. What Maybe it was a joint. And so I don't even know if it qualifies. Maybe it was just like a hard sell. You know, it wasn't <laughs> not quite a mugging. Um, and then my house was, uh, and I didn't live and in you an didn't, apartment. You, wait, you just you left the joint? Yes, he just left the joint. on The, the guy threw it on the ground, and we didn't touch oh, it. okay. Yeah. Don't even know. No fun. Was. No fun. We were not fun. We were not fun or funny. That's the thing about growing up in New York. When I would talk to uh, relatives, like I had relatives who grew up in a small town in Oxford, Ohio, um, and hearing their experiences growing up, like I would go visit them in the summertime, and the things that they got involved with, with drugs and alcohol and sex, um, I was amazed because none of that stuff was happening with me and my friend group in, in Brooklyn. Um you know, which I'm not saying certainly wasn't the case for everyone growing up at that time in New York, but I always felt like there was so much going on, so much to do that we weren't looking, we weren't, we were never bored. And so we were never looking to explore things, to explore anything forbidden because there was so much to do that we were allowed to do or that yeah. we had access to do. It didn't. And you could, you could, uh, you could explore those those forbidden things virtually and vicariously just by seeing movies and what, everything that was around you and just participating in the, you know. Yeah. I, I didn't do, I mean, I'm not talking about sex, but I, I didn't do any of that other stuff until I moved to the Midwest. Like, <laughs> when I arrived in Madison, not only was everyone who was already here like, what do you mean? You don't, what are you talking about? You don't drink beer and you don't smoke pot? And I'm like, oh, you know, I was like 40 years old before <laughs> any of that stuff kicked in. Um, which is what I always try to tell my kids. I'm like, you know what? I, I made it to 40 without doing this stuff. You don't need to be doing it right. at, at age 17. Um, anyway, they're not taking my advice, uh, which is fine. Um, right. So they may, so, so, so to me, like it, it's a, it's, it feels real to me. And, and, and I really do quite enjoy that, that, that mashing up of, theatricality, Broadway or off-Broadway. Like, you know, people, some people who came out of the screening that we had uh, of Little Murders said to me, imagine how much more powerful this is as a stage production and how much more affecting it would be if you're watching it. And I, I don't, I mean, maybe it is. I can't picture it in my mind. To me, this is the perfect marriage of this theatricality in the writing and in the performances and the grittiness of seventies of Gordon uh, of Gordon Willis's you know amazing beautiful cinema. I think it's a beautiful yeah. looking film. Uh, uh, the grain and and those New York locations you know that either they constructed or are actually shooting on location. Both like I think that that that's a vibe that I am totally into. I accept that, and uh, I just you know and the one thing you left out is the direction which i think is only adequate i think you know pfeiffer and willis and the actors are really you know given it given it their all but arkin as a both as a performer and as a director is only adequate i think he's 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 you know and i really like alan arkin a lot but I, you know as as an actor but 
I think I think here it's it, it I think it would I think it does in order to make it really stand out as a movie and really special cinematic experience as opposed to you know just one of many you know very interesting films that came out around that time that are worth seeing would have been having somebody like Godard do it who would really play up the kind of deconstruction of the of the of the stage and film tropes and you know and probably cut in you know clips of Mao and things like that right <laughs> sure. which i feel would have made would make the film more dated now and and probably. and less less interesting like i feel like that film still feels fresh and still feels shocking i do think it's a shocking film even in 2022 i think that when i think her the her her murder is is and and I would and I would say yeah most of the film the directing the, the you know where they're putting the camera and what they're doing is maybe undistinguished but I would point to two things and they're both like right next to each other but Elliot Gould's monologue about his um, when he comes back from Chicago and he's sitting at the table and he's talking about being in college and being investigated by the government yeah. who started reading his mail. A strange story. I'm not even quite sure what it is he's trying to convey. Yeah, that's one of those things that I think Gould delivers it well, but that's one of those things where it's like it's it's Pfeiffer going on some kind of rant that, like you say, like you don't know where he's coming from. Like it just seems like kind of, uh, you know, impossible to wrangle anger, you know, just. Right. And I think it's me. It's Gould's character maybe trying to explain I me. Mean, she wants to know, Alfred, wh- how did you wind up this way? I, why are you so passive? Why are you so, right, incre- why, how did, why are you so shut down? And she thinks it, it, she'll get, he'll get the answers from his parents, which I think he kind of does. Yeah. But beyond that, he, you know, he, he, has, he has so er- removed them from his life and erased all memories of childhood. But he does have this other thing in his head, and I think he's trying to offer her this other story about how the, the, the things that he's gone through that have made him what he is today. Maybe. But I'm saying the choice of shooting that in one long take and the lighting and the fact that you don't even see, you see Marsha Rod's, the back of her, her head, I think some people don't even realize she's in the frame for most of that um, shot. I think that's a, a you know, and, and, and some of that's Gordon Willis, but I think that that's a very interestingly and well directed i agree and it's and it's maybe even you know it's it's worth comparing that to how nichols does some of the key scenes and carnal knowledge too and and it's less showy i think in little murders and it's uh it's a well-done scene Uh, you know as as written i feel it just is not as good as the writing in carnal knowledge but it's it, it it's maybe it's maybe something to point to for the, you know if if Arkin was involved in that deciding how to how to shoot that but it, you know I'll, I'll I'm 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 more likely to give credit to Gordon Willis on that sure and then really the the very next thing that happens is her assassination and I think the shot of them lying in a pool of blood and her dead body on top of Gould's and the way Gould you know, has to extricate himself and pull himself from out from under her and then crawls into that corner. I think that that's another really great shot. Yeah. And really devastating. And the sound design, uh, the fact that there is no scoring, uh, really, there's not a lot of scoring in the film at all, but the fact that there's 
really, they don't use music at all mm -hmm. uh, for the next probably 10 minutes of the film. You know, that scene goes into him on the subway, which I also think is a really uh, powerful series of, sh of, of shots. Um, yeah. I think it's a little too long. I feel like it's, it's kind of obvious and especially in light of movies that are already out, like where's Papa and the incident. I feel like it, it just, it feels really dragged out and, and really the last half hour of the film until the final five minutes when, you know, they, they bring the gun back. It's not, it's not interesting to watch a catatonic character. It's, 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 he's passive enough for the first part of the film, but he's, he's Elliot Gould and has a certain charm and humor to it. But just watching him walk around kind of blankly, it just feels like the movie, you know, is saying, you know, this is serious. And we know it's serious. It should be, it should be serious enough when Patsy gets shot, you know, and you're just completely shocked, but. Right. A half an hour of walking around shell-shocked is not... Uh... Well, you know, what works for me, and I, and another thing that w I mentioned to you briefly uh, a few days ago, is that I am invested in their story and in Gould's character, and I am wondering... I mean, I think it's all built to have the audience wonder what is going on, you know, We've been on this journey with him. We've seen this guy who was in a semi-coma, passive state, was finally brought out, you know, able to experience some emotion and is just at the point where he is opening back up to the world and then his world is completely destroyed Yeah, just at that moment. And I think, you know, if, you're, if you are in emotionally invested in his character, despite the fact that it's not, you know, that it's not a particularly well developed character, but if but if you can, you know, put your own stuff in there, like I seem to have been able to with this film, um, then you're wondering what is what is his reaction going to be? Is this a movie where he's going to then shut down? And then I think it's another sort of like shocking surprise as to where he is going in his right. head. Um, so you're either on that journey with him or you're not, and I I, I think it's totally I'm. I think that plenty of people are not on that journey and watching this film are like, and they're like you at that point are just bored because you're not. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's, there's something to be said about having such a passive character to begin with. And then, you know, that you should be asked to care about him. You know, um, De Niro goes through something kind of similar in taxi driver, but you know, somehow Travis Bickle, despite his uh, homicidal, slaughter at the end you know is somebody you still are concerned with and care about. right and as we sort of as we sort of move into carnal knowledge that's another thing where for me i wind up finding just about every character in little murders to be more interesting and sympathetic and 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 a character that i'm that i care about in some way um as opposed to carnal knowledge which to me is a movie where I don't care about any of these people or the people that I care about. We are the women who, for the most part, we get to see for a little while and then they're out of the picture. Yeah, um, and we really only see them, uh, you know, through the through the eyes of the Nicholson and Garfunkel characters, you know. And it's, it's not, and, and, and we, we're kind of forced to accept their 
alternate perspectives on them. Well, and I think the, maybe the exception... not kind. Right, but I think the exception is the Candace Bergen character, and as you and I talked about before, like neither one of us are Candace Bergen fans at all. I have never been able to enjoy her in anything, but I do think she's great in this movie. I do too. And I do think... I like her in this, and I like her in Starting Over a lot. Mm. And I think her character is, is, is pretty fully formed, and maybe it's the fact that she's the one woman who we get to see more than anyone else through both of their eyes. And so we get a, a, a fuller picture of her because we're getting, we're getting her, we, she's got a lot of real scenes with both Garfunkel and with Nicholson. And, you know, in a way that Anne Margaret doesn't really with Garfunkel at all. I don't know that we ever have any dialogue between Anne Margaret and Garfunkel. No, he's just hovering over her on the, Bed at the towards the end. There. Yeah, maybe I want to complete my thought on this, on the Candace Bergen character. Oh, go ahead. With uh, in carnal knowledge, which is, you know, she she is po- po- possibly the most likable character in the movie, and yet. You know, what's clear by the end is that she's never, well, it's just not entirely clear, but it's it's suggested that she's never, she's gone and married Art Garfunkel and never told him that she's slept with Jack Nicholson and, uh, you know, and, car- and was carrying on with him the whole time. And, you know, that could that could very well be one of the reasons why, you know, their marriage didn't work out. Yes. And and that makes sense. I I haven't seen this anywhere and I, uh this is only my one interpretation of the movie as a whole, which is that Jack Nicholson's character is this poison that infects everyone around him uh from the get go. And you know, I think that's I think that's fair. I think uh yeah, I, I was I was coming at it when I watched it again yesterday. Um, from the point of view that he that from from exactly that point of view he he is poisonous, but he's also he's not Satan either. He's not the devil. He is in the Witches of Eastwick. You know, he's um, he's more uh, more human than that. He's you know failable and and susceptible to. Uh, at least subconsciously bouts of compassion and you know uh for people if we don't if we don't see them see that in his in, in anything he does on screen you know um he you know he is uh, you know he's he's trying to keep a relationship going at least with Anne Margaret and he ends up marrying her you know probably out of pity and that ends up you know making him more poisonous yeah, but he's so, I mean, we never, you're right, but we never see him as anything but poisonous. He's yeah. a, he's a complete asshole from the first time we see him basically until the end of the movie. We yeah. never see, uh, you know, I, 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 I mean, may, maybe we're supposed to interpret some of the, some of the things that he puts Garfunkel through as, as helpful, yeah. uh, as, as, as a friend, but not really. It's usually to to his own t- advantage, and 
the one thing I'll say, you know, I want to I want to play a game of what was playing uh, the week of Little Murders uh, before we really go into, and and maybe I'll move this over at some point. But the the one thing that struck me watching it, I watched it again yesterday, and I hadn't seen it for a while. Um, is that we've been? I think we've both been living for years with uh, Howard Stern playing the clip of Nicholson blowing up at Aunt right. Margaret as as, as you know, offered as pure hysterical humor, you know, just, yeah. Right. But what that clip doesn't do and what I had to be reminded of, um, if I'd, even if I'd registered it when I used, when I'd seen the movie before is that, that, that she responds to that and she's not taking, she's not particularly, uh, She's not devastated or wounded. Hearing her response, which is she, she's laughing, she's smiling and saying, "Well, uh, well, you're making it. You know, now it's really hard to resist wanting to marry you." Like she, you know, she's in on the nonsense of what he's saying. It, 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 that conversation, I mean, it's it is mostly a monologue, but it plays differently in the context of the film than it does when Howard Stern just plays his rant. Right. Not a lot differently, but enough that it's like okay. You know, the, the, this scene doesn't, I mean, it's weird because <laughs> I'm saying this, the scene does end with her attempting to commit suicide right. in a way, but but it also feels less harsh in the context, in, in, in looking at her and being able to see her and hear the few words that she says in reaction, it, it's more like this is a dinette, she knows he's full of shit and, and in, in a way that you, you don't get when you're just hearing him. Yeah. And and you know uh, again my problem with the movie is this is the same problem with Little Murders. It's like it's it's Jules Pfeiffer saying, you know, uh, that relationships between men and women and 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 throwing sex in there are just it just makes everything impossible, and uh, it's it's. It's a it's a kind of a miserableist point of view, but for some reason it doesn't feel um, well. Not for some reason. I, mean, I think for a very specific reason, which is the kind of the, the form formalism of the film um, and the and the and the performances, especially Nicholson's, kind of brings it to a more kind of human level where it doesn't feel as uh, allegorical and representative of of humankind as Little Murders does. It feels like this is a very very specific film about a very specific person, and he really is the the focus of the film. I mean, he really is the main character, and as as you say, it's this poison that comes from him that we know we don't really know where it comes from. Although I guess he's just always had this kind of you know man-child attitude towards women why don't you give me what i want and 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 continue to you know be be what i want you to be yeah see that and i think that that might be a difference that you and i have about this performance and this character like i find him to be the most irredeemable and unpleasant protagonist or main character in a film that i can think of um and i don't I don't, I mean, I recognize him as human. I do believe that there are people that are like that. 
Um, Especially very specific kind of, you know, guy going to, I, I assume by the, from the timeline of the film that he's, you know, going to college just after the war. So they didn't, they weren't, they didn't fight. And, uh, and, you know, coming of, coming of a, becoming 40 by 1970, 71. And, you know, and that, this is what, this is what his attitudes towards women and sex are going to be. But I find, I think I even have more sympathy for Daniel Day-Lewis's character and There Will Be Blood than I do for, for Daniel's character in this movie. Yeah. It's, Uh, it's, he, he he is hard to like, I suppose, um, you know, anything that I find redeemable just all comes from Nicholson's personality. You know, he's just, just think he's a great movie star and, you know, he's someone you want to watch. He's fascinating. I think, um, you know, I guess the other, I think the thing that I can hold on, that, that, that does interest me more, I mean, yes, it's true. It's, I mean, you know, you can't take your eyes off of Nicholson, and I think he's always great to watch. Uh, but but I think that the, maybe the, maybe another way to look at the movie is, in the, is it's the tragedy of Art Garfunkel's character, Um. I do find Art Garfunkel in the college years, I find his character to be, you know, sympathetic and naive in a charming way and sort of happy-go-lucky in a, in a, in a way. And, and, and then by the end of the movie, he's, as, as I say, like he'd been infected by this Nicholson poison and is just as unpleasant and miserable, you know, more or less uh, as Nicholson's character. Infe- infected by his poison in more ways than he knows, at least until the very end. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing um, about Nicholson, um, I remember the reaction, some of the reaction to his performance when it was first released in The Shining and the complaints about that movie and about Nicholson was that, you know, he's, you don't see the arc uh, uh, Jack Torrance is a is a is a miserable creep yeah. from the get go, and yeah. so the whole idea of Stephen King's novel, which is that this hotel is somehow infecting his character and and drawing on his weaknesses, you don't ever get to see the the early Jack, the, the early Jack, the more sympathetic. Yeah, and and Kubrick's defense for that, I remember, I think. Spielberg had the same reaction to Nicholson and Kubrick countered it with, no, it's, it's, it's Nicholson. It's just, it's just the, the charm behind the guy. You can see somebody who, you know, has positive qualities just because it's Jack Nicholson, you know, and he compared it to like James Cagney playing, you know, the public enemy or some of those gangster characters where he was just, you know, shooting people all the time. But, because he was so dynamic and charismatic, you could say, "No, there's something, there's something about this guy that's good or right. know, redeemable." But I think that the but my point is that the criticisms of of Nicholson and The Shining, and then later on in uh, a few, uh, what is it, A Few Good Men? What what's the what's the one yeah, where he's a few in good men? A few good men. Yeah. You know his sort of over the topness. Um, like I think, like somebody should have or could have pointed to this and said, "Well, what's the difference between this this character and this performance and carnal knowledge?" Like here we are in '71, and he's already, you know, unsympathetic in most ways from the get go, and also delivering these 
monologues in a completely over-the-top way. I mean, I think that, you know, I don't know whose idea it was, uh, uh, who takes the credit or the, or the blame for the way he delivers the big monologue to Anne Margaret in this movie, which is screaming at the top of his lungs, yeah. totally out of control. But I can see it as written, I can see a completely different reading of that monologue. That, sure. that scene could be played an entirely different way by a different actor. Well, I don't know what kind of direction he was given, but it seems to me that, you know, he's a man-child. He's a baby. He's becoming a baby at that moment, you know, yeah. screaming at his at his mother, you know. Yeah. That's I mean, that's that's what's going on. And that's and that's that's funny. You know, the movie's often described as a dark comedy or, you know, or some kind of satire, you know, but I just see it as kind of uh, a, a, if not a Jules Pfeiffer rant, then a you know Jules Pfeiffer's uh, honest kind of or attempt to be honest exploration about this type of character, who I'm sure he saw all around him. I'm sure that's what his inspiration, yeah, for the script was. Well, and, it's, it's another interesting movie in that it's called a comedy, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't. No. I don't know that it is. I don't know that either one. Like, if you compare the the three movies that Mike Nichols made before this movie, oh, yeah. it's not a comedy compared no. to those. It's not. It's not a comedy in the way that the gra- even the Graduate. Graduate is has this ambiguous ending, and you know, and certainly loads of satire, and you know about. Southern California living at that time and, and and youth culture and all this stuff, but it's a very funny movie. It's it's got a lot of laughs and most of which come out of Dustin Hoffman's reactions to things. Um, but no, I don't I don't feel like carnal knowledge is. But but what the other thing I think that redeems it and makes it a more interesting film than Little Murders is the direction and is this idea. It's funny because it's it, there, there's. There's very few scenes, right? It's a lot of like long scenes. It feels, in its own way, it feels more play-like than the movie of Little Murders does. But it, but well, also because, and I didn't, I didn't focus on this and figure out if this is true. But it's almost, if it's not entirely just every scene like one long take, it mostly is. Most of the scenes are shot as a single long yeah, take. Long takes, medium medium shots or close-ups, and that's the and and but but every everything is. Pretty interesting. I, I I like some of Mike Nichols' films very much. I tend to think of him as generally overrated. But I think here he has real control over the material and a visual scheme for the whole movie that carries through from beginning to end. And, uh, and I think what f- feels cinematic about it are, are those close-ups – the idea that you know you can play a, a whole scene that's you know between three people and just have it be on Candace Bergen's laughing face in the one scene, or Jack Nicholson watching Candace Bergen and Art Garfunkel as they're ready to take off together, um, uh, and and only and then later on only show Anne Margaret at certain times when he's when he's giving his rant. There's always there's something. Very interesting. It's it's maybe a little showy, but I, I like I like I like it in this film, and I also like the uh, the condensation of uh, the condensing of uh, events. You know, so you have these. You know, these uh, the film is very structured, and I love the almost 
Kubrickian, and by Kubrickian, I guess I mean 2001, you know, leaps in, in time, uh, something that Paul Thomas Anderson does later on, and there will be blood, and, you know, and, and Kubrick was very important to, to uh, Mike Nichols at this time, as was Fellini, which is why he uses Fellini's cinematographer, Giuseppe Rotono. Um, but but it's it's I, I I really like the formality of the film. As I've gotten older, I find it uh, a much more sour film than I did when I was younger. I don't know when you first saw this movie, but I was thirteen, almost fourteen, in Spain. My first trip to Europe with my junior high class. We went to three or four cities in Spain, and in the last three days, we we're in Madrid. And it was me, and we had two other roommates. Uh, two other 13-year-old boys in a Madrid hotel room watching this on a pan-and-scan black-and-white TV. And I, I don't think we saw the whole thing, but I remember tuning it in from, like, towards the end of the college sequence and then through the end of the movie. And and uh, it was it was great to see as a 13-year-old. And then I, then I saw it a couple years later on VHS when we got our first... VCR. We didn't have a VCR until I was like 16. And, and I had an LP tape for years that I had dubbed putting two VCRs together of uh, carnal knowledge and the graduate, both in the horrible pan scan versions. Well, yeah, I was thinking for both of these movies, I was aware of them and saw bits of them on TV before I ever actually caught up to seeing them their entirety or unedited um but it's interesting that these movies were shown on tv at all little murders i remember being sort of on late night new york tv every once in a while carnal knowledge i feel like a bigger deal was made out of its network premiere or network or at least network screenings i don't think that it was shown i'm pretty sure it was shown heavily edited sort of unlike i remember um the last pic the last detail mm being shown on network TV and they made a big deal out of the fact that they were going to leave it all, all the language intact. Although I think that they lowered the volume significantly for the swear words, but they were announcing like, yeah, we're showing this. Oh, I didn't know they did that. Yeah. Carnal knowledge. I don't think got that kind of treatment. And so, you know, I think it's the first Hollywood film with the C word. I think. Sure. Which, which shocked a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, and, and, I had that same, you know, as a kid, Mike Nichols to me was, I don't think I ever put him uh, on a list with Hitchcock or Spielberg, but I know in my head I was like, this guy is one of the showiest, and my, and, and and for me that meant great, yeah. great directors who, who thinks visually and, and his shots, and it was all about The Graduate. It was like, these are the wittiest, most cleverly conceived sequences you know, as far as the visuals. And I just, you know, I thought like the scene where Dustin Hoffman is uh, in the scuba suit walking through the party and, and diving to the eyes, that this yeah. is the most brilliant thing that's ever been concocted on screen. And I do think that the that what makes, that what makes carnal knowledge sometimes feel like it's a comedy, even though it isn't, is all about Nichols and the way he's staging these scenes, the the wit of the film is all about where he's putting the camera and how he's moving people through it yes, and what you're yes. seeing and not seeing. And that's absolutely, I, f- I think that's that's really right on. I, you know, the other thing about it 
comparing it to Little Murders again, is Mark Harrison, his biography of uh, Nichols that just came out recently, talks about the reactions to the film being one way or the other, either this doesn't... Uh, mostly the reviews that were negative were like this does this movie does not do anything to condemn this behavior it just you know shows it as it is and or accepts us expects us to 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 like them and pauline kale had the opposite reaction she said uh what i felt about little murders which is the, the movie is piling on misery onto these people and doesn't doesn't allow them to be human uh and doesn't uh, you know, it's just just a just a miserableist movie that uh, is condemning them too much. You know, right? Um, I, I think they're probably both a little bit off. Uh, I feel I feel like you know um, because it's Nicholson and 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 the other performers. I think we're asked to you know like them a little bit more than 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 we do. And I think Nichols' style helps take away from that feeling of of uh you know being asked to pity these characters too that they're that they're you know um you know they have all this stuff piled on them or you know you know by the writer and director i think it's just i think it's them i think i think the actors make them feel a lot more human and when i and when i watch little murders i feel like that kind of like that you know, oh, don't we? Aren't we supposed to pity Alfred and Patsy? You know, and if, and that, like I said, I think feels condescending. You know, a director who gets compared to Mike Nichols a lot because he started in the stage and came off with these, you know, all-American movies is Sam Mendes, and mm. there's a guy who I consistently feel his, uh, you know, his all-powerful hand and and his and his expectations that we feel pity for these characters. But on the same, at this, and I, and I think you're right. And, and, I, people, and I just feel like he's being condescending. Yes. I also think he's never come up with a single shot or sequence that's as visually clever or witty as anything that Mike Nichols did in those early films. Agreed. I, I think that, um, and, and I think this is, this is probably deliberate and I think that you're supposed to feel this way, but I find the first 20 minutes or half hour of the film, the college years to be so much more entertaining and uh, quickly, tightly paced. Yeah. It's a lot more going on. There's a bunch of, there's a bunch of scenes. It's a, it's there's a bunch of scenes. They all end sort of before you think they're going to, they don't mm -hmm. really, it's interesting because they don't, they don't land on punchlines, these scenes, which is another reason why I don't really think this film is a comedy. Um, but it's still like the pacing is like you're right. There's they're telling like a story and with with much shorter scenes. Even though again they're all sort of these one shot scenes, yeah. and then the film really slows down uh, after that, and only sort of for me comes alive in a in a in a energetic way with with Nicholson's rant. Yeah. Um, What's striking is that is that kind of juxtaposition of the short scenes and then these these long takes and these jumps in time. Where you know you're asked to figure out between what's what's being said and and the hair the, the hairlines on Nicholson and Garfunkel, you know how, how much older they are and what's going on. Well, that's I mean, uh, other than you know some slightly questionable hair pieces in, in the college years, 
I'm not sure. Yeah. I guess Garfunkel's wearing something too, maybe. Yeah, he's he's much more convincing as an 18, 19 year old, yeah. 20 year old than Nicholson is. Just just looks wise, you know. But Nicholson brings a, a certain kind of you know wise guy energy to it that feels like a college guy that he loses oh, later on. Absolutely. And yeah. so I I looked up how old these actors were in seventy, assuming yeah. that this was around when they shot it. Nicholson was thirty three. Yeah. Garfunkel was twenty nine. Yeah. Bergen was twenty four. And Anne Margaret was twenty nine. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. You 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 show characters who you portray over a period of twenty years, and you cast them in the middle of that of those twenty. Yeah. years. Yeah. And I think that they. I think this movie does a really good job of that. I think that that other than than maybe Nicholson's hairpiece and the college thing, they're 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 very convincing at all those ages, especially when they start playing older than they are. Yeah. I think Garfunkel at the end with the sort of pot belly. However, yeah. they achieve that. I'm like, well, I'm buying that. Yeah. Yeah, he, I think he's good. In the he's really good. Yeah. He's one of these guys, you know how I, I always used to hear this thing about musicians becoming actors and how they're good for like one one role and that's about all they've gotten. That like Sting, uh, I guess Bowie probably was never thought of, uh, you know, after Man Who Fell to Earth. Nobody thinks of his other performances, but I guess, yeah, I don't know. I, I only saw Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence once. What do you think about that movie and Bowie? Um, the movie's okay. It's interesting, I guess. And Bowie's pretty good in that. If you were going to pick one performance from those later years, that might be the one. Not Labyrinth? Um, no. <laughs> but uh, although I, my favorite Bowie moment on film is the, um, or, you know, the, performance is when he plays himself in the uh, season of Ricky season Gervais, two of extras. Yeah. Yeah. One of the funniest scenes ever. Yeah. 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 I love that shot of uh, Candace Bergen laughing. Like I'm totally yeah. convinced that she is laughing. The Harris biography talks about how the, uh, the, the intention is to ultimately show you that she, you know, maybe is, is, uh, laughing with them for a little while, but ultimately is giving them a performance uh, in the way that you know, she already is for Garfunkel by not letting on that she and Nicholson are having an affair. But uh, um, it, but then he describes the scene as shot that, that her, her laughing was genuine and, and, you know, and they were, it seems they like were coming it. up with jokes and things at the time to, you know, to make her crack up like that. Yeah, it's pretty great. Going back to Nicholson and the framing and the way it's shot, it, it feels like it was, it feels like uh, Wes Anderson uh, took some stuff from it. I mean, there there, hmm. there are lots of shots that are very symmetrical. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, the beds on either side of the frame and then something in the middle. And then there are all, there are those shots where Nicholson and Garfunkel are basically looking at the camera while they're talking to each other, you know, you're getting one close-up of Nicholson staring straight ahead and then Garfunkel staring straight where in the middle of the frame. Wes Anderson and maybe also Paul W.S. Anderson, who's famous for putting everything in the center yeah. of the frame. And well, it's very Spartan, too, and it brings attention to the frame, and that's, you know, the, the, you know, I, I always liked the film in the pan-scan version, which I probably saw three or four times before the Criterion Laserdisc came out, uh, probably sometime around 1990 and I had that and you really get to see the composition and the, and the fact that the sets are so spare, there's almost never anything on the walls and you know, there's really, they really want to focus on the human reactions in this movie. It's not, uh, 
Yeah. It's very striking. It's a very it's a very visually striking film. Yeah. Uh, and then you know the use of close-ups and where he puts heads in the frame and you know which can work in a pan scan version. You just put them in the center of the frame, but it's much more it's much more striking when you see the full scope version. And it's never been released on Blu-ray and now we're going to be showing this new 4K restoration at the Cinematheque. Which I'm guessing will then eventually be a Blu-ray or yeah, 4K. it's got to be around the corner. Maybe I'm sure Criterion's working on it. There is a Spanish Blu-ray. Oh, okay. But I don't know. Yeah, Spanish Blu-rays yeah. they tend to be bootleg. And right. It's hard to hard to say if they got hold of a true HD version. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's amazing that this hasn't come out on blue on blu-ray it's actually um i would have thought the opposite is true but in 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 goofing around on the internet i found more material on little murders than carnal knowledge because hmm. i'm surprised i would i thought that carnal knowledge has the has the bigger reputation at this point it's oddly the film that's been you know not been in wide circulation recently i mean this there's not been there's not been 35 millimeter prints of it for years there was a DVD that had the you know the full letterbox version and the Criterion letterbox laserdisc, which was probably from the same transfer. Uh, it's just not a film that's I don't think has been shown that much or had much discussion. Whereas, you know, there was a DVD of Little Murders, and was there a was there a Blu-ray of Little Murders? I don't know if they've ever did that, but there is a there's a UK Blu-ray. Uh, I forget which. Maybe it's just it's it's just shown up much more on. You know, on TV and stuff, and um, carnal knowledge. I think has just been harder to see. Well, neither one of them have right have been streaming in recent yeah. memory that I've. I they're not streaming now, mm. but they're but uh, officially. But there yeah. have been DCPs <laughs> and new thirty five millimeter prints made, so it's probably shown more theatrically in little rep murders. houses. Yeah, little murders. Um, and carnal knowledge. Just you know, uh, I, I don't know the last time that a rep house. Showed it because this DCP, I think, is the first one that's been made. And you know, if they were showing a print, they were showing something that had probably turned completely pink and red. Right. Maybe the maybe is it Anne Margaret who you think it was singled out for praise more than anybody else in association with this movie? Well, she got an Oscar nomination. Right. Um, I think she won a Golden Globe. But it's kind of a quintessential Nicholson performance. I mean, it's it's between what? It's between Five Easy Pieces and King of Marvin Gardens. Is that it? And then, and then, last detail in Chinatown, and Cuckoo's Nest. That's pretty. That's a pretty good run. You know, you think one major movie a year. And King of Marvin Gardens isn't probably held in the same regard as the others, but it's a it's a good film. And he also did his in '72, the year after this. He also did Drive. He said he directed Drive. He said so. It was a you know pretty big year for him. That's uh, that's a pretty good run. Here's what Pfeiffer says about Carnal Knowledge. Pfeiffer wanted carnal knowledge to be a cautionary fable through some dark and angry material, so it had to begin in a lighter place. I wanted it to start with the kind of innocent playfulness that an audience would find charming between young men and women. This is the way we all are, and this is the cuteness, he said. As Garfunkel's and Nicholson's characters age, Nicholson gets darker and darker, and as they get older, that guy, Nicholson, stays the same. The conversation barely changes, but it's not as funny anymore. It's not as innocent anymore. So cautionary to who? To 
to to women to stay away from guys like this? Or I, I, I think maybe cautionary in the same way that he thinks of little murders as cautionary. Like, hey, this is this is who we are, and this is what we've become. Th- this is who we're about to be. You know, if if we don't start paying attention to what, you know, if we don't acknowledge that that that. Yeah, that the the war of the sexes is a real thing, and yeah. kind of the men are toxic and and complete assholes, and mm. women are conditioned to accept that as the norm. Like that is going to be the norm. I mean, yeah. Again, like I think he, I think he's implying that he thought he was like waving a flag, saying, "Hey, watch out!" But you know, <laughs> it, especially in carnal knowledge, is sort of like, well, this is it's too late. Like you've already, you know. <laughs> You're not warning us. You're just right. you're commenting just on what's already heaping misery on us. Um, here's here's something interesting. This is him talking about uh, the, the Nicholson rant. Um, one scene in Carnal Knowledge shows Nicholson's character screaming abusively at a woman, which Nichols at first thought would alienate viewers. And Pfeiffer says, Mike Nichols called me into his office and said, I don't think we can shoot this scene. It's too ugly. It's too cruel. We're going to lose the audience. We'll never get them back. And by that time, Pfeiffer says, I had worked with Nichols long enough on this film to trust him and to trust his reactions. But this is the fun part. I also understood something about judo, that if I argued with him, I would just get him to stay harder with his own argument. But if I just listened and shut up and let him talk, and then Nichols talked about the scene all the way to a restaurant. And I just listened. I made some cursory comments, but nothing very much. And by the time we get to the restaurant and pulled over, he said, no, I guess we have to shoot it because that's what would happen. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Nichols talked himself out of out of changing the scene. Yeah, I read that, that, you know, we, we're, we're losing him. But Nicholson's a creep from the beginning. I mean. Right. Yeah. So I don't know what he's talking about. We're, we're losing him, you know. Right. And I think we're just as much with him as we are at that point, as we are at the beginning. I mean, he's, you know, you're watching it because it's Jack Nicholson and he's fascinating and still charming and his own poisonous, toxic way. Yeah. And he talks about seeing the film uh, at the Museum of Modern Art more recently with Mike Nichols. And he said, I said to Mike, they were both there and he said to Mike, I could never have written this film today. I'm a different person. And he said, I could never have directed it. (laughs) Um, And then Pfeiffer says, when I was young, I was much more, I used to be angry all the time. And for many years I was in a rage and I exhibited a lot of that rage on the paper and it worked, but somewhere along the way, I don't know how to tell you this. I got happy and I can't do that rage thing so much anymore. Did you ever, have you ever seen Closer? No, I tried, but I. It's terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it feels like a Sam Mendes film, you know, but it, that's his, that's Nichols attempt to do carnal knowledge again. And whatever that was, 2003, 2004. Well, my, you know, my sense, my sort of completely anecdotal, like without doing a formal study was that Nichols lost interest or lost the ability to visually craft his movies as, as spectacularly as he did in the early years. And so, yeah. Those later Nichols movies, some of them are good because of the material, but it's not, he's not calling attention to himself as a director. And for me, it's like you're losing your main talent as a, yeah. as a director. Yeah. He, he, he's, uh, he's doing exactly what you said, losing that visual component, and, but also hanging on to the miserableism. And that makes them really hard to watch. Uh, two, two exceptions to that. Um, 
the mid eighties, uh, Biloxi blues and working girl, which are both, you know, really nice comedies. Uh, I haven't seen working girl for ages, but it, Biloxi Blues, interestingly, is the more visually interesting film. It's you know it's based on a play, and maybe he was engaged with it that way. But it's it almost has a kind of carnal knowledge layout of um, you know he's using CinemaScope again, and it's and and the and the, his framing of the actors is almost seemed to return to that kind of early seventies. Not quite as rigorous, but but definitely more interesting. And then you know Working Girls like a year later or something like that, and it's. It, it's a. It, it, I remember it being a fun movie, but I don't remember anything about it being, you know, as visually uh, engaged as as his late sixties, early seventies movies were. Right. Another good one. I think. All right. Didn't he direct Silkwood? Yeah, and I saw that forty years ago, and I, you know, and I, I just remember being depressed by that movie. Yeah, very so. depressing. But but a, but a, but a well directed. A little a little more a little more in line with what he was doing in the. In the seventies, visually, it I took a long that, that that was his first movie in like eight years, I think. What what was the one that was eight years earlier? The Fortune, I think. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, he hadn't, he hadn't directed a movie since The Fortune. I saw Biloxi Blues on Broadway with Matthew Broderick, but famously, shortly after that, I think I think did he get either they all got fired or he or they they. They were I, Neil Simon was like, "You got to get rid of these assholes. They're fucking around every night on stage." Mm. Like, and I remember, I remember Broderick and a bunch of the other guys sort of cracking up at times. It didn't really feel like it was part of the play, but they were constantly like messing with each other, and I think improvising and doing stuff that was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They were just having too good of a time. Was was did Mike Nichols direct the stage version too? Maybe. Yeah. Like it, you don't do that to those guys, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh well actually so we can play two games of what was playing that that week you got anything else you want to say about carnal knowledge I don't think so I like it more than Little Murders I think it I I don't like it as much as I did when I was younger I feel like it's kind of sour now uh, um visually it's much more interesting I kind of feel the way about it the way I do about some of those later Robert Altman films that some people still love like The Player and Shortcuts. I loved them when I was in my early 20s, but I just find them so bitter and sour now. Yeah, I think I feel that way about Carnal Knowledge and Little Murders. I don't think I really, really, really saw until much more recently and so only have experienced it um, in its entirety or even thinking about it as a, as a, as a 50-year-old guy and I... And so I don't have that. This is how I felt about it when I was a kid, and this is how I feel about it now. Maybe that's why I like it more. I don't know. I'm able to sort of. There's something charming about how it captures a lot of things that I remember seeing in New York in the '70s, um, and I, maybe I'm just able to sort of forgive its, you know, miserableness. And I, th- I, I think they're both very watchable films. They're very, you know. They're very, they're, and they're very interesting for different reasons. Um, I just, I guess, I just find Little Murders a little more sour than Carnal Knowledge, and Carnal Knowledge is redeemed for me by the performances and 
what Mike Nichols is doing yeah. visually. Maybe another thing for me with Little Murders is that aside from Gould, um, it's the discovery of these performances by the the other main cast. Marsha Rod, I yeah. think, is, is really great. Didn't like, do a lot of movies. No, no, don't remember her in anything else that I've seen. Um, Vincent Gardinia, a guy who I've known forever, but really I'm like, oh, my God, he's so funny in this movie. And um, and the other two family members, too. Yeah. I mean, it's a much more ambitious and challenging movie for a director than Carnal Knowledge. You know, There's only five speaking parts in Carnal Knowledge. You know, and Carol Kane isn't one of them. She just kind of sits there mute at the end. Interesting Carol Kane story that Jules Pfeiffer tells is that um, uh, she was talking to him at some point in recent years uh, about whether uh, Carnal Knowledge was her first film or something about it. And she said, I was in this other film that was slightly earlier I don't need, she goes, I, 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 I showed up and I was almost like a day player. There's a scene where there's, there's a, 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 a riot going on on the steps of a church. She goes, I don't even know what movie it was, but I'm in that scene. And it, as it turns out, she's actually talking about little murders. <laughs> she, you know, when they first arrive at the church, there's another ceremony that's bursting out of it and people are fighting on the steps of the church outside yeah. the church. She's in that crowd. Oh, wow. But she didn't realize it was Little Murders. And Pfeiffer, it's interesting, he thought it was Little Murders, but then he said he watched Little Murders and he like couldn't... His memory was that they had shot a scene that the, that the, that the fight that breaks out at the actual wedding of Patsy and Alfred spills out into the streets. Right. And watching watching it, he's like, no, they cut, they cut the end of that scene, which... Could be true also, but I think he's just misremembering because there is a big fight scene on the church steps. It's just before their ceremonies <laughs> when they first arrive. Anyway, so maybe so, she's in there, but you couldn't. You couldn't find. I her. couldn't find. Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to see it, but apparently she's she's part of that action. So uh, New York Times reviewed Little Murders on February tenth, nineteen seventy one, uh, which, as we've learned, like doesn't necessarily mean that that's when it opened. Like the the back then the the times was wasn't sometimes, but I think a movie like this though that probably was the f they had to have opened it in New York before anywhere else. But I mean, I guess it could be wrong. But but movies were so st releases were so staggered. I mean, yeah, for every you know huge studio movies, you know, you didn't sometimes you didn't see them for weeks or months in other cities. Right, and I think Little Murders was one of those movies that they were hoping they build up word of mouth from city to city. Sure. Um, but uh, I can't imagine why they thought that would happen. <laughs> but, yeah, but opening opening on February tenth in New York. Um, Actually, I can't imagine why they thought that would happen. It's be, it's be exactly the reason you said at the beginning about you know that Pfeiffer probably thought it would catch on with hippies and and the youth crowd. You know, right. But this must have been a re-release because it's already being talked about. February seventy one. February 71, I'm about to tell you what was opening, but it must have been a re-release no, that was that's opening. when it opened. Yeah, no, 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 I'm, I'm moving on to other movies Oh, now. okay, what else was playing? Right, what else okay. was playing? All right. Uh, triple award winner, best picture of the year, best director, and best supporting actress. So this is clearly like, hey, we won all these 
Okay, so I'm, well, it was, oh, a, it was the we, New York film critics that it was. You're, a triple you're, award. Ben's looking at a screen. I'm not. So yeah. am I, I'm supposed to guess. Huh? Triple award winner. What is it again? Best. Well, it's the triple award for winner from New York film critics. I, oh, okay. So I don't know, um, but it's a Jack Nicholson film. Oh, Five Easy Pieces. Yes. And it's being so it's being re-released on that day. Yeah, it probably opened at some point in 1970, and it, and it. This was probably just before the Oscar nominations came out. So. Which it, of which it got several, so. Yes. Uh, a movie I've, I've not seen, maybe we've talked about. Um, I don't know how to pitch this to you. <laughs> well, okay, written by Newman and Benton. Oh, there was a crooked man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's int- it's okay. It's been popping up on Criterion Channel recently. Uh, is it a western? It is. Western? It's a western, and like it's a contemporary western or a no, period? No, okay. it's period. Um, it has something to do with Kirk Douglas trying to escape from a prison and Henry Fonda's like the warden. I, I saw it once. It's the s- penultimate feature by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, right? Um, you know, who was one of the great screenwriter directors from Hollywood's golden era, but by this point had become, you know, a guy who directed other people's scripts. I think uh, there was a crooked man was Benton and Newman. And then his last film was sleuth, which was the Anthony Schaefer play. Yeah. Uh, the tagline was locked in a living hellhole. It took the crooked man to handle them, even if he had to kill them to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not bad. It's, you know, I much prefer the Benton and Newman, uh, their next collaboration, which I think was Bad Company, uh, although maybe What's Up Doc came out first, but um, which is a Western from 72 with uh, that, that Benton directed his first directorial job with Jeff Bridges and Barry Brown. There is... Um an ad for a Columbia Pictures Showtime directory. So this is all the Columbia Pictures, I guess, that are showing. Mm. Oh, one of those ads that has like four movies in it. Yeah, so it's got five easy pieces. Uh-huh. It's is, got is dollars in there. No, I wish. Uh, it's got the owl and the pussycat dollars that I showed at my bar mitzvah, yeah. 16 millimeter print in my bedroom, in case you haven't listened to every episode. Of <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, owl and the pussycat, um, Cassavetti's husband. Mm. Um, investigation of a citizen above suspicion. Mm. Never seen. Yeah, I've seen it. It's good. I think we showed it at the Wisconsin Film Festival one year. Oh, really? It's a great Morricone score, like one of the best. It's a very political film by uh, Elio Petri. So these are all, this is all very pointedly Oscar campaign mm. films. And Investigation of a Citizen won the 1970 Oscar for Best Foreign Film. Okay, here's a film that I haven't seen, rated GP. Uh, this is also in the same ad, and Judith Chris says it's Truffaut's most glowing work. Is it The Wild Child? Nope. Uh, 1970. Or 71. Uh, Bed and Board? Bed and Board. Yeah, Bed and Board I like. Bed and Board is the is the, is the the Duanel film I like most after 400 Blows. Most people really like Stolen Kisses, but I'm, I much more enjoyed Bed and Board. The last one... Love on the Run, I think it's called. Is is it just a travesty? Mm. Uh, and the last one in this Columbia Pictures Showtime directory, the tagline is, 
and forgive them their trespasses. I don't think this was Oscar bait. <laughs> yeah, this was something to fill up the grindhouses <laughs> and drive-ins. And forgive them their trespasses. Um, I don't know that that's helpful. I don't know. No, what is it? Doctor's Wives. Oh, yeah. Is that like a soap opera? That's not like a Jacqueline Suzanne thing, is it? It sounds like it might be. I don't know it. Is Diane Cannon in that? There's no info on it. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll bump into an ad later on for it. This is just sort of like the lineup. Um, Hard movie to see. Oh, yeah. I got a copy of that. Huh. Uh, so this Roger Greenspun uh, is the guy who reviewed Little Murders, and this guy just spoils the entire movie in the first paragraph. He says, almost everyone must know the history of Jules Pfeiffer's Little Murders, how it opened on Broadway in 67, closed within a week, played successfully in London, and then reopened in 69 to high praise in a long run for an off-Broadway production. I assume that everybody also knows that the story of Little Murders is how Alfred the Apathist marries Patsy the Optimist and how she is shot dead on their wedding night. What? 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 Dude, come on, man. Yeah. Wow. It's assuming. That's <laughs> assuming a lot. Yeah. I mean, again, and that's it's interesting. Maybe that is like the whole sort of insular New York Broadway world that right, everyone right. assumes that everyone just everyone knows. Everyone was everything. talking about this. Yeah. yeah. But you know, also. Critics being spoilers weren't, that wasn't such a big deal. Right. Uh, here's a movie that I haven't seen. Uh, one of the year's 10 best, says John Simon. <laughs> a delight to the mind, says John Judith, Simon. Judith Christ. Uh, American premiere tomorrow at the Lincoln Art Theater. Uh, Carlos Sara. Sara. Carlos Sara of 1970. Or 71. This is 71. Uh, is that Peppermint something or other? Uh, the Garden of Delights. I don't know. Never saw it. Yeah, There's know. a bunch of Saura films that just went on Criterion Channel. I watched his uh, oh. 1974 movie, Cousin Angelica, which is interesting. Hmm. It's a movie I've never heard of uh, and don't know who did it. Uh, you want to hear some reviews? I can't imagine. I it's going to give anything away? Not really. Uh, pigeons? Oh, yeah. I, I don't know it. It's uh, hard to see. I think it was like a counterculture kind of... American film? I think so. Oh, it is. It's a New York comedy. A whirlwind out of love, back in love, uptown, downtown New York comedy. Makes sense, pigeons. New York was famous for its pigeons at one point. Maybe still is. Right. Uh, also known as... Uh, the Sidelong Glances of a Pigeon Kicker. Oh. was released under that title at some point. Here's a movie I don't know anything about. Uh, directed by Laszlo Benedek. With Trevor Howard. Liv Ullman. Oh, yeah, The Night Digger? The Night Visitor. Night Visitor. Yeah, that's, in, that's actually a pretty good film. It has a... Uh, Laszlo Benedict's not a particularly interesting director, but it's that movie has got some weird stuff in it. I remember it has a a pretty interesting uh, prison escape sequence for Max von Sydow, who has to also put himself back in his jail cell the next morning um, in order to get away with something. I can't remember what, but yeah, it's worth seeing. It's out there on Blu-ray and. Kind of interesting to see those two in the middle of their 
all those Bergman films and the the Yantrell films. The tagline is locked in the cold asylum of his mind. A sane man stalks his prey. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Maybe it's not a prison, but like in a, some kind of asylum where he's supposed to be locked up. But I mean, it, it 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 looks like they're pitching it as a as a horror movie. Yeah, and I think that 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 kind of marketing continues like right up to the Blu-rays and stuff, but it's not. It's more like a psychological thriller, you know. Music by Henry Mancini. Oh, that's good. Produced by Mel Ferrer, hmm. and with a great. Pull quote from Gene Shalit. Yeah. Or, I, oh yeah, who was writing for Look Magazine. I, I remember McPadden doing a whole Gene Shalit thing and talking about the fact that uh, he was just a TV guy and was not, didn't do written reviews, but I guess he did. Yeah. It's probably said, before the Today Show. Yeah. Years have fled since we've had a chilling mystery, but here is one at last to squeeze the mind. If your flesh doesn't crawl, it's on too tight. <laughs> uh, Thunderball and You Only Live Twice were playing as a double feature. Yeah, but those Bond films—they were well. You could see them all the way up to the early '80s. They were even the earliest ones were getting re-released all the time. Uh, Cinema Five, the Rugoff Theaters, as we mm. share the documentary. Was that last year? Yeah, 2020. I think it was our, during our oh right, COVID it was a, year. Yeah, yeah. So they have uh, they have their list of of. What they were showing, sudden terror at the Murray Hill. I don't good, know. good film. Um, uh, it's a thriller with. Uh, if, I suppose it's the same movie with Mark Lester, right? And Susan George. It's. Um, oh yes. British film shot in Malta. That's like boy who cried wolf kind of thing, um, and uh, pretty pretty good. Directed by John Huff, who later did uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, and uh, Legend of Hell House. Oh wow. Um, Little Murders uh, at the Beekman, Ramparts of Clay at Cinema Two. You know that movie? Yeah, I've seen it. It's uh, I think it has something to do with the uh, Algerian war and conflict. I think, if I remember right. Say hello to yesterday at the Paris. Never heard of that. What's that? Must be French. Hmm. I don't know why, but I, I feel like at the Paris they would show French films if they could. Uh, Little Big Man was playing at the Paramount. Little Big Man in uh, February. Yep. Of 71. Yeah. I just saw a movie. Now I can't remember if it takes place in 70 or... No, it's... Yeah. I just saw a movie that will be coming out soon where the two main characters go to see Little Big Man the day after Christmas, 1970, I think. Husbands, the husbands, yeah, which probably hadn't been out too long. Gimme Shelter was playing at the Plaza, right? The Projectionist was playing at the Fifth Avenue Cinema. Hmm. It's got uh, Rodney Dangerfield as the theater manager. That, that's actually a pretty funny scene. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Oh, keep your tie on, kid. Joe was playing at the Eighth Street Playhouse, and Joe is interesting because there's an ad for it, but it says. And I don't know if this was a joke because of the... Let me see if I can find the ad. Because um, it, it says Joe and then in parentheses in the ad and the missus, M-I-S-S-U-S. Was that ever the name of the film where they just... Uh, here, let me show you the ad since we're in the same room. Who's the missus? 
You, well, do do you see his wife in the well, film? I can't remember. I, 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 there's a so there's a picture. I mean, this is not the greatest. Can you see this? Yeah. Like there's a woman in the picture with yeah, kissing Peter Boyle. kissing Peter Boyle's head. Weird. But isn't that crazy? I haven't I haven't seen the movie for a while. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, it's funny. Um, and Joe is in quotation marks, and and the missus comes after in parentheses. They did the same thing five years later for the sequel to True Grit. Do you remember that? No. The sequel to True Grit is John Wayne and Catherine Hepburn. It's called Rooster Cogburn. Rooster Cogburn. And then in parentheses, and the, and the lady, which is not part of the title. See, the title I always of the movie thought it is, was. It's no, interesting. The title of the movie is Rooster Cogburn, but it was just on the ads, you know? I used to see it, right, advertised, and maybe even when it was on TV. Yeah. Like, I always heard Rooster Cogburn and the Lady. I bet they just they, they just came up with that too late. Like, after all the prints were made, they were like, we should have called it Rooster Cogburn and the Lady. But they couldn't possibly have been thinking that they should have called Joe, Joe and the Missus. No, and I, and I haven't seen Joe for years, and I, I like Joe, but I don't, I don't remember anything about the Missus. Joe doesn't even come into the film until it's like almost two thirds over, right? Isn't that? Yeah, yeah, I think. Well, I don't know about two thirds. Maybe it's a it's a it's a big stretch. I remember that. Huh. I'd like to see Joe again. And Joe is one of those movies. I think because you know it had an exploitation distributor, but it got taken seriously by critics. That was just right. Always playing. They kept those prints in circulation for years. Like that was a big hit. That movie. Here's a movie I don't know anything about. Um, with uh, Faye Dunaway, directed by Jerry Schatzberg. Puzzle of a Downfall Child. I've seen it. I saw Jerry Schatzberg introduce it at the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens. Um, it's not. It, a lot of people like it. It's it's kind of interesting because Schatzberg was a fashion photographer, and it takes place in that world. Um, so it was a very personal movie for him, and it's got some kind of you know. That early 70s narrative fragmentation that's kind of interesting. But it was another, I think it's a universal film, and it's its one of those string of films in 70, 71 that Universal was putting out. These, you know, talented up-and-coming directors working with small budgets. And I think it's before Panic in Needle Park mm. for Schatzberg. Mm. Puzzle of a Downfall Child might be his first feature. Um, I'm not crazy about either of those films, Puzzle or Panic, but I really like Scarecrow a lot, and and I like some of Schatzberg's later films too. Uh, it was a Disney double feature playing. I don't think I've seen either of these movies, and one of them I don't think I've ever heard of. Um, but the main attraction uh, was with uh, had Ronnie Howard in it. But starring Steve Forrest, Jack Elam. Jack Elam. Jack Elam. Um, directed by Robert Totten. Mm. I don't know. What could that Together be? they met every challenge of an untamed land. Boy, there's there are a lot of Disney movies. From They put out a movie like every quarter in the first half of the 70s and the late 60s. What? I'm familiar with this title. I don't but think. What I'm, is it? It's called The Wild Country. I see. Totally lost on me. But it was playing with something called, it's hard to read if this, I'm going to assume this is Nick the Orphan Elephant. Hmm. I wonder if that's just a short. Maybe. I don't know. It's rated and everything. Here, look. 
Yeah, it's probably a short. You think? Yeah, it's probably not animated. John Wayne, uh, you could see Rio Lobo. Not bad. Howard Hawks' last film. And it was playing with Lee Marvin and Monty Walsh. Very good film. I like Monty Walsh a lot. Is that also a Western? It is. It's um, it's the f- one of two movies directed by the cinematographer William Fraker. Oh. Um, and it's um, Jack uh, Palance, Lee Marvin, and Jean Moreau. And Mitchell Ryan, who's very good. It's based on a novel by uh, Jack Schaefer, who also wrote Shane. Um, and it's 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 a it's the classic early seventies, dying of the West kind of movie. It's a it's a movie about dying sad cowboys, but it's good. Great John Barry score, in uh, in Monty Walsh. I recommend it. Okay, I'll check that out. Um, Anyway, rounding out what was showing, um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff, but they're a pretty big ad for Love Story. Um, and it says, the top of the ad, it says, starting today, a phenomenon, meaning Love Story, it comes to New Jersey, with an exclamation point. So the, in February of 71, New Jersey didn't get Love Story until then? Apparently. Wow. Exclusive first-run New Jersey engagement. But I don't know when it when it opened in 70. It might have been late in the year, so it's not maybe not that big a deal. And then also, Tora, Tora, Tora. I like Tora, Tora, Tora. I'm, I'm for Tora, Tora. I'm for a for a for a for so anyway, moving on to July 1st, 1971, when uh, Carnal Knowledge was reviewed by Vincent Canby. Um, uh, Shaft was in theaters. Um, Give me Mur- Truck Turner any day. Yeah, me too. Uh, Murphy's War. Not bad, Murphy's War. It's all right. Peter O'Toole and a uh, Peter Yates directed World War II story. Yes. Also, Philippe Noiré. Philippe Noiré. Fellini's The Clowns was in town. Yeah, it's not one of my favorite Fellinis. Ryan's Daughter. Ryan's Daughter, yeah, that would have been released at the end of 70 in New York. That's interesting to see that it's still playing a movie, you know, was, I guess it was probably still on those roadshow engagements. Maybe it had moved out of the now at popular prices kind of thing, you know? Right. Uh, there was a revival house called the East Side Playhouse, uh, and their ad says, now the great ones are on the Upper East Side. So for two bucks, uh, you could see Thunder Road, <laughs> Red River, A Thousand Clowns, and Charge of the Light Brigade. Interesting rep house selections. Uh, Thunder Road, another movie that was in circulation for you know, years and years. Uh, Walkabout was premiering at the Plaza. I'm a big fan of that one. You know, that's a movie that I saw as a kid on TV. Uh, but watched again recently and had no memory of the opening of that film and how crazy that mm, is. That montage. Well, the montage. Oh, and then the father. Yeah, the yeah, father It's stuff. very dark. 
Yeah, I'm like, did they cut this out of the yeah. TV version? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, because wasn't the movie rated G or GP yeah, or something GP, like that? GP. Yeah, it's um, it's very disturbing. Um, I got sh- I, we were shown it on a 16 millimeter print in my uh, junior year of high school. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Had an effect on me. It's good. Isn't Jenny a gutter naked in that movie? Oh yeah. Yeah. I used to love her, uh, Logan's Run, and then um, American Werewolf in London. I'm pretty sure the uh, first nudity in any movie I ever saw was uh, uh, watching Equus on uh, on TV, uncut. Maybe hair. I've seen hair in a theater. I've never seen Equus on stage or screen. And the movie's a little... Uh, I think the word Pauline Kale used to describe a lot of Sidney Lumet films was embalmed. Equus is a little embalmed. Here's a movie I used to hear about all the time. I'm pretty sure I've never seen it. Uh, I'll give you some of the supporting cast. Again, this is July 71. Jack Warden, David Burns, and Dom DeLuise. I'll give you one more. Barbara Harris. Oh, is it uh, Harry Kellerman? Yeah. Well, now, is the name of this movie, Who is Harry Kellerman, and why, why is he is saying this? those terrible things about me? Yes. Okay, that is the full title. Yes. That's what it says in the I don't, I don't think it's ever been shortened to Harry Kellerman. Nobody bothered <laughs> is it bad? It's it's not particularly good. It's um yeah, I don't I'm not it's uh, it was a movie I it took a long time to catch up with and I finally saw it and was like hoping for another 70s gem but Right. So could you get to see um you know uh Dustin Hoffman's character is partly inspired by Shel Silverstein at least the kind of Oh. And all of his songs in the film are written by Shel Silverstein. And then later in the film Shel Silverstein Shows up as himself, performing oh. with Dustin Hoffman. So that's a little weird, but um, you get to see that. So directed by Ulu Grossbart. Ulu Grossbart, I think it's his second feature after the subject was Roses. But um, the next uh, Grossbard Hoffman, Hoffman thing, team Straight, Straight time? time, which is right. I just saw again recently, and and that is just a great, great film. Yeah. Uh, Willard was showing. Yay. I didn't realize that was 71. Get them, boys. <laughs> Jeez, Willard, look at all the rats. <laughs> uh, Shaft uh, was actually playing. Uh, Death in Venice was in town. Oh, here's a special notice at the top of the McCabe and Mrs. You killed Socrates. <laughs> Sorry, I can't get off Willard. That's all right. Did you uh, Did you watch the remake with what's yeah, the Christmas Glove? Yeah, it was very... Faithful. It was it was kind of fun to watch Crispin Glover. The thing Crispin Glover brought to it was the creepiness. Uh, well, definitely that. <laughs> Bruce Davidson's got his own level yeah. of creepiness. Oh, yeah. But 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 uh, Crispin Glover's innovation was as the rats are attacking, he goes rip it, rip it, rip it, rip it, <laughs> or tear it, or maybe he says both those things. I can't remember. That was fun. So the top of the McCabe and Mrs. Miller ad. Says that has a has an announcement. Special notice: due to a breakdown of the air conditioning system, <laughs> the, 
The Criterion Theater will be closed until further notice. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which has been playing there, will continue at the Lowe's Cine 3rd Avenue at 86th Street. Hmm. The reopening date for the Criterion will be announced as soon as possible. I wonder if that, on wow. some level, affected McCabe and Mrs. Miller's business and reception. I wonder. Because hmm. it's not, it was not a hit, you know. It's now thought of one of the great movies of 71, but... Right. It's, uh... I don't think it was around too long. Uh, Clute was playing. Mm-hmm. Jane Fonda was offered the uh, Anne Margaret part in Carnal Knowledge, but uh, said she didn't want to do it. Didn't want. I think they they were they wanted her to gain some weight. Hmm. Well, what and she went to do Clute instead. Which well, was what's her name enough. calls her a tub of lard. Mm-hmm. In this, in, in a- Anne Margaret gained weight for the part. I mean, she doesn't seem like a tub of lard. No, by any no, but the, it's coming out of the mouth of a right of a very sour character. Yeah, absolutely, very cynical character. Uh, but that, you know, a, a great performance by Anne Margaret. Um, yeah, I think she's terrific. I mean, I'm assuming that's her best performance. She's a good actress, and I think that was one of the things about the movie is that she always had been, but it was you know, it was in a movie that you know wasn't a kind of mindless George Sidney musical or you know something it was the first time she was in a really serious film and she'd been in things like CC and company and things and and she was I think she was able to um she was able to uh, really build on that and she was in things like well I mean she got nominated again for Tommy a couple years later mm. and that's you know certainly a prestige film yeah um and she's good in that and she's really good in magic yeah um and you know, and she was she was doing you know serious movies and prestige movies for another you know well into the eighties. Um, you know, I think and I think people were taking you know taking her seriously, and then she went back and she was doing you know like her Vegas show and stuff like that. So I think there was probably always that that kind of image she was fighting. She liked to do the dancing and the singing and everything, but you know, so I think. She was happy to do that, but I think people were still taking her seriously and casting her in things that you know where she could actually act. Drive, he said, uh, was at the Lowe's Tower. East. Oh, so that's a seventy-one film. I guess. So. Okay, I'm I'm wrong. Yeah, that's I was taking that as seventy-two. Uh, Red Carpet Theaters are proud to present the premiere engagement of MGM's, and I'm leaving the title out. Is a George C. Scott film that I saw. Oh, the last run. Last run. Yeah, which was his first movie after Patton. Right, it's the film he wanted to do. I, I recently heard, um, I think it was Dino and Mike in their I Eat Movies podcast talked uh, about The Last Run. And it was totally like, George C. Scott was like, I want to make like a Bogart well, movie. And it was his show, too. He was he had that much clout. He got John Huston fired from the movie. and Yeah. Richard Fleischer, I got to meet over a weekend uh, almost 20 years ago. And he ended up replacing Houston, and he told me about the the day he arrived at the location and hotel to take over the shooting. And Houston was made a point of being there to exit as he was entering, and the the staff of the hotel were getting down on their knees and kissing his ring. <laughs> he wanted to show Fleischer how beloved he was. Some other podcast was talking about. White Hunter, Black Heart recently. I think maybe uh, it was PCP or whatever. And they played a clip, and I had forgotten. I know I've seen that movie, but I've forgotten that that Eastwood is really doing a Houston oh, voice. Yes, she does the voice. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. 
Um, uh, not quite Daniel Day Lewis caliber. No, but it's good. I yeah. like I like Eastwood in that film. Yeah, it's an interesting movie. Uh, now here's something that really every time I see this, I'm like, this was '71. Man, they cranked those movies out fast. Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, playing. one a year. They did. There's like I think less than two years between the release of Planet and Beneath, and then once a year for the next three years, they put out another ape movie and then by 74 they were doing the tv series was there any other film series like this at the time and that was proceeding pace like was there a precedent for this mm, there has to be i sure. mean there's james I mean, bond the but universal monster movies you know you sure get, okay you one a year in the yes, 40s yes, but and, let's say since the 50s or 60s like because um, james bond even at its height wasn't every f- other year was it they were. Oh, they were. For the okay. fact, the first three are every year. 62, 63, 64, Dr. Okay. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger. And then it's and then it's every two years. And do they take like two and a half years off between Diamonds Are Forever and Live and Let Die, something like that? Hmm. And then uh, Man with the Golden Gun is just a year after Live and Let Die. Huh. Then it, then it goes back to every two years until... Until Roger Moore finishes, and then there's, I think, I think, no, that's right. There's two years till the Timothy Dalton films. I think the big gap is between Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan. There's like a six-year gap there. Here's a movie that is reviewed and, I guess, premiering that week. Uh, Debbie Reynolds and Shelley Winters. Oh, uh, Aunt Helen? Is that the one? or what what's, if, what's the matter with Helen? What's the matter with Helen? Directed by Curtis Harrington. Curtis Harrington. Made, I think, back-to-back with whatever happened to Aunt Alice, or which is the Ruth Gordon. and Ah, oh, yeah. Director of photography, Lucian Ballard. Yeah. Yeah, those movies are okay. I'm not crazy about those. Uh, Vincent Canby was not a fan. He said, this new movie is so perfunctory... It's likely to give misogyny a bad name. And I, don't, I, don't know. I don't know what he's talking about. Oh, that Vincent Camby. There's a big ad for a movie uh, that I've never heard of. Um, Roger Greenspun says, Michael Moriarty and Topo Swope are really something special. Topo Swope. Yeah. Cold, calculating killing machine, a powerful, highly charged film, fine, sensitive performances, extremely literate work. I have no idea. Glory Boy. Never heard of it. Yeah, me either. Who even knew Michael Moriarty was? Cinerama releasing. That's not Michael Moriarty on the ad. That looks like. No, that must be Topo Swope. (laughs) Wow. Glory Boy. There's a so do you think Topo Swope's a man? Uh, I don't know. That looks like uh, Mitchell Ryan, doesn't it, a little bit? Yeah. Topo Swope is an actress. Oh, okay. She's in Pretty Maids all in a row. Well, then I don't know who the hell this guy is in the ad. But look at the tagline for Willard. Willard tears him up. Now, maybe, so maybe... Maybe, he maybe got that, that isn't maybe that isn't uh, Crispin Glover's innovation, <laughs> or maybe he saw the ad. So there's what's the title of that film again? The the Topo Swope film, Glory Boy. Okay, there's nothing under her IMDb under that title, so it must be My Old Man's Place. 
two soldiers returned from Vietnam with serious PTSD. That sounds like it, right? That sounds right. Yes. That is Mitchell Ryan. <laughs> nice. And Arthur Kennedy's in it. And William Devane. Oh, William Devane. And Peter Donnett, who plays Senator Quested in Godfather 2. Wow. And it's directed by Edwin Sharon. Who's that? Uh, the same year he directed Valdez is coming, the Burt Lancaster, mm. Elmore Leonard Western. T looks like a big TV guy, Law and Order. Hmm. I'd see, I'd, I'd be interested in seeing that movie. Sure, cast like that. All right, I think we've done it. We've done it. I think we've really done it this time. Yeah. Thanks for asking me. Hey, thanks for doing it. It's been a while. Yeah. Um, good. I'm excited to see the 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 full screen the uh, the the restoration of carnal knowledge. Yeah, me too. We've got a bunch of other great 70 movies coming our coming our way this semester at Cinematech. So if you're in the area, come join us. That's right. Look us up online. All right. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Ben. <laughs>